That is awesome. Have we started recording? We have started recording, but it's up awesome. to you to start. But yeah, that's, that's rolling now. Awesome. Jamil, welcome to Uncomfortable Truths. Thank you very much, Pidia. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. No, anytime. Anytime. I've got to tell you, I'm really digging. You've got coasters that are shaped like little uh, vinyl records. Yeah. Yeah. Nice little touch. Very very cool. Yeah, it's a nice little homage to like my musical background. Like, there's a, I've got a bass over there in the corner. Um, underneath those shelves over there is a um, an amplifier. Like, I used to be a musician, professional musician for a few years. So you're a bass player? Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah. so. cool. Because my um, Clint, my husband, is a bass player. That's how we met in the band. Oh, really? Yeah, because I used to be a vocalist. So oh, I'm great. familiar with the world that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to, I used to do backing vocals. I used to be in a cover band called Stimulus Package, which was obviously back in 2006. Oh, Stimulus Package? Yeah, 2007. <laughs> so um, a bunch of mates of mine. Oh, actually, I didn't know. They were, they were a bunch of mates. Uh, this is just after high school. High school was like 19. Um, I was a pretty good bass player. And then I was looking for just, you know, some people to play with. Yeah. And there was a bunch of mates from another school nearby. From I'm from Rogal, South East Suburbs. Okay, yeah. Um, they um looking for a bass player because the one they have a shit. I joined those guys. And, yeah, we ended up winning 10 grand. Um, what, in a, a band comps? Yeah, or? Battle of the Band. Cover oh, band, yeah. Battle of the Band, back in the day. When we, what was the name of your band then? Uh, so we were still called Stimulus Package. Oh, okay. Right. You started just, off as Stimulus Package and kept the name but changed a little bit what you did? Yeah, we changed it to Vice um, because like, it was in like 29, 2019, or 2010. Mm-hmm. And then people were like, all right, we, the gimmick's over. And then we, when we won the Battle of the Bands, we got an agency. Ah. So we got better gigs through an agency. So we would go to like venues like all around town. So, you know, we would play at the Sandbelt, which is in Sandringham um, on a Friday night. We used to do residencies in various on a Thursday. We used to play at the Elephant and Wheelbarrow on Saturday nights. Oh, um, wow. Now, is this doing originals or covers? or covers, bo- covers. Covers. Just like your classic, you know, pub rock band. Yeah, right. Yeah, but we were all like um, 19, 20, 21. Well, it's a pretty exciting thing to do when you're 19, 20. Oh, yeah, it was great. Like, it was a great experience. Like, um, yeah, you know, back then I didn't really have much of a lifestyle except for playing the gigs and going to the gym, really. Um, Sounds good to me. Sounds better than working at Macca's and... Well, okay, my son's about to start working at Macca's maybe, but, you yeah. know, it's better than a lot of other options that are out there for young yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And don't get me wrong, like, it wasn't about the money. We just did it. It just gave us money, but we reinvested every cent back into the band to grow it. Right. Um, yeah, oh, we right. You guys are right into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, you know, the drummer in the band, so me and Luke, who's a drummer, he, we um, were probably the heads of the band. Okay, yeah. Like, as far as we did the most of the management. Yeah, yeah. Finding um, gigs and all that stuff. Well, just, you know, just the, the business side of things. Oh, right. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and uh, that sort of, that, uh, that experience that I had dealing with venues and sort of the stuff sort of lends into what I do with comedy now. Yeah. Right? And I was, yeah. I always had a business development sort of mind. And then now Luke, he's still in music. He's a, um, he lectures at SAE and uh, teaches yeah you know, video. Oh, sorry, audio production. He's an audio engineer. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. You know, Luke they're, is the, they're, they're related industries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he's in it for life, right? As a muso, um, all of us probably not as much as Luke. Right. But, so he does he work in a recording studio or do live yeah. mixing for bands and all that yeah, stuff? Yeah, all of that sort of stuff. Mostly yeah. audio engineering and lecturing um, for oh, okay. audio production. Right, so that's how I can make a living out of it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. he stayed. He definitely stayed in music uh, as a full time profession. Yeah, um, we sort of split up around 2011, 2012, just because it's too much work, not enough pay, yeah. other priorities in life. 
Yeah. Um, we were also just, you know, a lot of steam, like Chris, our vocalist, he, you know, was starting to get, like, just having throat issues. It wasn't really managing his voice because, you know, three, you know, three 45-minute sets a week. Uh, no, four, you know, three 45-minute sets per night, three to four nights a week. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. I've done that. Yeah. And you have to be really careful with your yeah. voice. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't know how to manage ourselves very well back then because we were kids. Yeah. In fact, I've never done that three or four nights a week, but just doing one three-set gig because they're 45-minute sets. Mm. You're basically singing for nearly three hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we would have to, you know, swap things out or sometimes he would break or he would have to just sort of keep his range low. So, yeah. you know, just things fell apart. But, you know, we're all still good friends. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Like it was, you know... Yeah, we stay in touch. Like that's you know, cool. It's a special bond when you've been creatively worked creatively. Oh together. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, music is my first love. Um, if anything, like comedy was inherent in my nature, but my first love was actually music. Like I was, I've always been funny. I've always not been funny, but if I was, my first passion creatively was music. Yeah, right. So I look back on those band days really fondly, and um, if anything, like you know, I would. If anything, like I'm sort of shifting where I'm going with my own life and what I'm doing with, you know, the various elements we'll talk about, like um, Aussie Comedy Network and things like that, to give myself more creative space to visit that again. Like I'm still, like I don't, I'm not really musical, not musically active. Yeah. But there's this constant hunger and drive that just keeps coming back to do my own thing or play with other musicians again and just get back into it. Yeah. And that's what I'm starting to realize is you know it's a bit of a shifting water internally about my creative outputs. It's, it's like it's the same or similar energy coming through. It's just being expressed in different ways with different tools. In some way or form, I, I think there's this thing, you know, in like spiritual energetic circles about, you know, different types of energy, right? Mm-hmm. I've talked about this on the pod is like, I think there is... Oh, duality. your pod, by the way, is called Binge Thinker. Yes, the Binge Thinker. Yeah, yeah. so if any listeners want to tune into your pod and listen to talk about this stuff that's what they need to find yeah yeah my pod's a bit by Jamil Raymond that's right yeah um, I call it yes yeah, I call it the conscious podcast because that's where I'm really sort of exploring this consciousness in my own mind um and a way a lot of the ways that the world works you know I'm someone that's really deeply interested in a broad range of topics mm. and ideas and concepts and I like to think big picture and how the world works yeah so that's the, the exploration part for me but you know and the different types of energy you were just talking about yeah yeah like you know i guess this is probably going to get again esoteric but this is genuine science right is that you know we are energetic waves um you know music is different frequencies you know Mm -hmm. music is just it's just just wave sounds different hertz is different frequencies so is the voice right so we're all conveying information to each other uh through frequency and through waves right yeah You, you know the way we talk the way we sing the way you know the way that music is conveyed, talking about, you know, wavelengths, even, you know, the vibe that we give to each other when we communicate, right? Mm. It doesn't have to be verbal. It can be non-verbal. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So... In fact, me- I think a lot more of it is non-verbal than we realise. Oh, it's like 70%, mm. right? You can, mm. you can get a good read on per- someone without having to hear them talk. Mm. Uh, but oftentimes, it, doesn't, it gives you the least amount of information if you're really in tune with someone or, you know, if you're not a regal room. I yeah, think. yeah, and you put actually in some ways tell more about people's tone and their accent than you do about what they're actually saying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because exactly. once you form words, you can tell lies, but the rest of it doesn't lie. Correct, you know, and then those that tone is usually just emotion in motion, right? It's just energy in motion. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, what they're feeling inside, you know, it can betray the words they're trying to put out there in the, 
you know, what they're trying to say, but you can sense the truth in people, you know, you can sense a, yeah. you know, a keen sense of bullshit and things like that. Yeah, totally. That's what I love about doing comedy is it calls bullshit. That's, that's my thing. That's yeah, right. but then, <laughs> in the, ironically, but, with comedy, you're actually conveying bullshit. Yeah. And it's fun. That's the fun part about comedy, right? You don't have to, You can suspend reality if you want to. Yes, totally. And I think great comedy does do that. It, it can either suspend reality or it definitely permeates a significant amount of truth, mm. if anything. Yeah, that's what I love about it. It's, it's, there's a deeper truth within the fibs and the lies and the stories that you're telling. Yeah. You're doing that to convey a deeper truth. Yeah. In the kind of comedy that I like, that's what it's Correct. going on. Yeah, yeah. I think all great comedy has an element of truth to it, or mm. else you wouldn't align to it, you wouldn't vibe with it, there wouldn't be that collective aha moment or ha-ha moment yeah. in comedy, right? Yep, yep. Because it's, it, and that's, again, to sort of wind that back to what I was talking about is, you know, comedy is a very cerebral, intellectual That's art true, form, yes. Right? It's about the thoughts. It's about how you convey your thoughts to get to a certain point, to a punchline, and get everyone on the same page at the same time. Mm. And you're really peaking that experience with the punchline. Yeah. As opposed to music, which is a lot more in the body, right? You feel it. That's true. You enjoy it, right? Yeah. You, 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 no, one's, no one's telling a joke and no one just immediately starts tapping their foot, you know, to the rhythm of a joke. True. Right? You feel it more in your body. And that's where I see the duality between comedy and music. Okay, yeah. Right? Is yeah. that music, it will articulate its energetic, you know, message in a different form. Because there's not, it's not, but particularly for me as a music, like a, a rhythm musician, mm. I'm more about the beat and the rhythm as uh, opposed to yeah, the vocals. Yeah, and you've locked in with the drama. Yeah, 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 and you're creating that vibe undertone of the song mm. for the, you know, for the, the lead guitarist or singer to, you know, convey whatever message they're trying to do, you know, whatever they're adding to the comp- the composition. Right. Yeah, yeah, they're riding on top of what you and the drummer are creating. Absolutely. To then create more melody, melody, and uh, and of course solos, and of course words. Yeah, yeah. But, but that sits on the top of what you're creating. Down yeah, the, absolutely. The bass, really, literally. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. It's just it starts with the beat, and then it basically works its way up in different frequencies and different mm. instruments over time. But yeah, for me, that's what I mean. Like, I've started to broaden my palette or sort of revisit music. As from that, from that vibratory and energetic perspective. Okay. It's like yeah. going, yeah, I, you know, comedy is great and I will always be part of it in some way or form. Yeah. But there's more to me in exploring both sides of the fence, right? Of music yeah. and comedy and just expressing and conveying and entertaining using both those mediums. Yeah. Right? That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. because they're both creative energy, but they are. Different, similar yeah. but different. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. even with music, you don't necessarily have to know what is being said. You might not understand what the words are. It might be in a language you don't understand. Yeah, correct. But you can still feel it because mm-hmm. you can feel the music and hear the music and you can hear the tone mm. of the voice, yeah. which gives away the emotion of what's being said, even if you don't understand the words. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways that I, I think about that is like, you can never tell what, unless they're very specifically or very leaned into their accent, for the most part, for most pop music or any music um, in the Western world, you can't tell where the music is from unless it is like Arabic music or African yeah, music. If you, because, yes. because you're not using your traditional vowel tones and vowel shapes and consonant shapes, you know, your vocal shapes to sing 
unless you're like Missy Higgins, who's just like that really like art, that ochre sort of, you know, right. heavy Yeah. So, you you know, music is a universal language, right? And, you know, you can bypass people's country of origin or their accents or their histories just, you know, by listening to that music. Well, it's interesting because I like, I like hearing, I like hearing fusion of different, like, so beats with some sort of Arabic scale over the top. Yeah. Or like a Dharambuka mm-hmm. playing or, or, or some Indian sitar yeah. or tabla or whatever coming in with some techno, not necessarily techno, techno but, but, but electronic. some sort of electronic beat underneath. Yeah, yeah. Which there's getting, like, some music that's coming out and it's got a fusion of different cultures, got amazing rhythms and, yeah. and, and or didgeridoo mm-hmm. sitting underneath something from, a, you know, beats and then something coming in from another country. Like, there's, yeah, yeah. do you know what I'm saying? No, I do. So, like, one of, actually, one of my most favourite artists that's Melbourne-based is a guy called Armin Payne. Hello, Armin. Um, he, um, I play a lot of his music at Jambo. So, usually when I'm at Jambo, because I wasn't there when you were there, unfortunately, yeah. I was overseas. Um, I like to curate a playlist that's sort of like, you know, Afrobeat sort of like world music. Yeah, with yeah. With that modern taste. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Armin's great. He, um, you know, he's got a couple of good albums. He's got this band called Taimori that does that sort of, yeah, integration of different... Oh, sorry, oh. give me one sec. Yeah, let me sure. Just, let me just pause this and we'll come we back to it. We can just pause. We have a, a mystery yeah, uh, yeah. person at the door. Give me... Test, oh, we're back. Yeah, we're back. So, we were talking about... Um, Global music? Oh, yeah, we were talking about, well, uh, yeah. Uh, is this Armin, now, does he run Jambo? No, no, that's no. Not, that's Sam and I. Armin's just a musician. Oh, Armin's a, music, Armin's a musician. Yeah, but does global style music and that's what you're talking about. Oh, right, here in Melbourne? Yeah, yeah, Oh, yeah. right, cool. Yeah, yeah, I was looking at some of his stuff, it's really good. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I had him play it. Um, we did an outdoor gig, Sam and I, uh, with the council in March. Um, yeah, we did an outdoor gig and I hired him to play music as like an opening act for the show. Yeah, cool. Like an hour with him and his jam band. And like he's friends with my cousins and like, yeah, um, my cousin's boyfriend works, yes, he plays the same band. So yeah, again, like I'm, I've always wanted to do something like, yeah, like a music and comedy night. Yeah, right. But make it like an event, not like an open mic sort of thing, like a real experience. That'd be cool. So you curate them together, so you know they're going to flow well together. Yeah, and yeah, stuff like that. yeah, absolutely. Like I've ever this idea for a while. I wanted to, that's sort of what I did with that outdoor gig. Is like you know maybe do some comedy. You know, get someone to do people do an hour worth of comedy, mm-hmm. and then turn it into a party afterwards. So that then, sounds like heaps of fun, man. Yeah, yeah, I think it'd be great. A bit like the festival club during the uh, comedy festival. Yeah, they yeah, do yeah. a night of comedy and then DJs afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Like. I would love to do something like that. Um, and yeah, just have stand-ups and great, just the tight killer show. And mm. then, um, you know, someone like Armin or some other, you know, just some other great band that's there that can appeal. And then, yeah, maybe just DJs after that. Um, can I ask at what point and how did you make, Not it wasn't really a transition because you haven't left music behind, mm. but when did you venture into comedy? Oh, it's a long... It's, and how did that happen? Well, so I've been officially in comedy for about five years. Okay. So I started about two or three years before the pandemic. Okay. So um, about 2018 Yeah, 2017, 2018. Yeah. Somewhere around that. I can't yeah. really remember. I've got it in yeah. my phone somewhere. I used to really keep track of it, but I just stopped caring. Sure. Um, but I've always had funny in me. Yeah, right. So, yeah. like, you know, um, I was 
like some of the earliest videos, you know, when your parents make home movies and things like that. It's just me entertaining my family at birthdays, oh, being yeah, like right. two or three years old and, you know, playing up to the audience and things like that. Oh, cool. Um, always cracking jokes with my parents. Um, That's great. Yeah. So uh, there was that. And then like in primary school and high school, I was always known for being the, cl- the class-, class clown. I was very disruptive, but I was funny. So that sort of helped. Yeah, right. And then, then like, I got... <laughs> so you didn't get in quite as much trouble. Oh, I still got in a shitload of trouble. <laughs> shitload of trouble. I used to be a real bully, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But I used to be really clever about it. So, like, yeah, I was a bit of a prick, don't get me wrong, but because I was smart and because it actually made people laugh, it was disarming to an extent. And even right. now, like, roast jokes and insult comedy is still something that I really like and, you know, that more brash New York, New York style of comedy yeah. is definitely more aligned to me. Yeah, right. Yeah, but in like high school, so um, in year 12, I got voted funniest kid. Okay, did you do award. class clowns or anything like nah, that? No, no. Nah, nah. You got voted funniest kid kid by your classmates? Yeah, yeah, by a bunch of my peers. <laughs> um, yeah, and then like I actually wrote, I didn't I didn't go to my high school graduation. I was going, I was had anxiety and depression at the time, didn't really feel like showing up to these sorts of things. But I actually wrote this, my best mate was the school captain. So I actually, okay. yeah, I wrote his speech. Right. Okay. And um, yeah, so I was, I've always And been... you put some funny things in there. Yeah, well, it was, more, yeah. it was actually more meaningful, but a few jokes as well, because he was a funny guy. I think he did class yeah. plans and things like that. Um, so yeah, I've, and then, you know, through, you know, early, like after high school, I was a guy that, you know, did funny statuses on Facebook and things like that. Yeah, right. Okay. So, so it was always, there was always that inkling. There's always this urge to do something dumb or irreverent or funny or, you know, just... Like people laugh. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And then I started to take it seriously. Yeah. Um, but you know, that doesn't always translate to stage. No, it doesn't. Right. And it can. It can, but it's not automatic. Or you need to. There's a. There's. It's a. They are different worlds. A little bit. They are. Like it actually takes a bit of your funny away because you're so concerned. Uh, you're putting yourself in a really unnatural place to be funny. Mm. You know, like one of the things that sticks in my head about comedy is that Bill Burr said, like, comedy is really just about this journey of getting back to being as naturally funny as you are around your friends. Yes, I've right. heard him say that. Yeah. And he said that that's the kind of language that you want to use. Yeah, you just want to be talking to a friend. Yeah. And, you know, spilling your guts and being real about what's going on in your life. You don't want to... I mean, that's, that's you know, generally what happens for the for the everyman style of comedy. Yeah. If you're a bit more performative, like Ricky Gervais, who's deliberately, you know, above the audience, but also not... Or you've got like a Jesselnik sort of style where you just, you know, there's that one track sort of insult style. It's, you know, horses for courses. Sure. But for the most part about trying to convey your personality and your individuality, it's usually about, yeah, coming that full circle down to that everyman sort of just a guy talking shit sort of vibe. It's, it's interesting how you kind of have to make that journey to come back to being relaxed. Yeah. As you are around your friends because getting up in front of a... a up on a stage with lights in your eyes and a mm. microphone and a yeah. whole bunch of people, hopefully a whole bunch of people, even worse, a bunch of comedians sitting there with waiting yeah. for their spot. Waiting for their spot, not <laughs> laughing, not giving anything feedback. Like, yeah. <laughs> you have to go through that whole journey of being able to deal with those circumstances and yeah. still, f- because those circumstances bring up um, nervousness. Yeah. And yeah. can bring up your guard a bit because it's all unfamiliar. So you normally you can't walk into that and just be your old funny self. You actually have to learn how to do that. Yeah, because 
I think, you know, particularly with the stage right, when you're funny and in the flow of being funny, you naturally hold court. Yeah. But you've been given court before anyone's warmed up to the situation, especially with open mics, right? So then mm. it's really coming off a cold start, and that's what the importance of a good MC is for a comedy show. Yeah. And things like that. That's why yeah. me and Sam sort of swapped that role out. I actually really like MCing at gigs because I'm okay at convening, con- like, convening energy when there's not something in the room. Like, I don't mind being the motivator and the starter. Yeah, right. And being the orchestrator of the experience, right? Yeah. Because as an MC, I think you really need to read the room and read the energy of it, right? Yeah. Ideally, if you do a job right as an MC, you kill at the top, and then you just sort of maintain the energy between the acts if necessary. Yeah. If you don't need to be there, don't. Yeah. Right? You just keep it going from one to the next. Yeah. Yeah. Um... And yeah, and I think that's important to understand really is, again, it's, it's what I started to think about comedy from an energetic level. Oh yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And it is a very energetic level. Everything is. Everything we do is like, again, is, is that energetic, mm, right? Mm. It's the vibe of someone, it's the energy in the room, it's the feel of the room, it's how you're conveying your tone, the timbre, the frequency, that sort of stuff. And also being able to tell if you've connected or not. Yeah. Because I know sometimes, and I've talked about this with other comedians, you you get off and you, you're like, yeah, that, that was really, that was a great gig. Mm. That, even if it wasn't a lot of people, you felt like you were on the same page together, yeah. on track. Yeah. And then I'll listen back to the recording and it's like, oh, they did laugh, but it doesn't sound as big as what I remember it to be, probably because there weren't that many people, right? Cause yeah. Mic. And then I've talked about this with others and they've gone, yeah, I know. And I've gone, but there's something about it that we can tell when we've connected yeah and it might not be enough people to be a huge raucous laugh but you can feel it yeah yeah you, you absolutely yeah i mean if you are not building that sensitivity to read the room then you are in deep shit as a comedian yeah right? oh so that's what we're talking about when we say read the room is about whether we're connecting or not yeah whether we're hitting the same frequency and we've got people on our side and that's yeah sort of and you don't and you know people People always think about, oh, I've got to kill every fucking time, right? Every fucking jerk, every line has mm. to be absolutely killer. Yes, ideally when you kill it, but even just keeping that, ma- even just getting people on side is still entertaining, right? It's still engaging for them. Yes. Right? Yes. And having that is a good bedrock of you knowing whether a joke is, you know, going to develop into something good or not. Yeah. Right? And yeah, it's, you can't, you can't hear that on a phone That's unless right. they absolutely kill. That's you feeling that out, right? And yeah. going, oh, I'm onto something here. Yeah. Right? And that's, you know, it's a very, it's a very individualistic pursuit and you really have to be attuned to that. Yeah. Because um, it's not, um, you can feel it, you, you, but you can't, it's hard to single out and identify because you can't hear it. Yeah. You can't see it. But you can tell when, when, when you've got them and you can tell when you've lost them. Yeah, it's a vibration, right? Again, it's an energetic mm. vibration. Are they engaged, right? You know, I don't, the worst thing you can do to a comedian is not heckle them, it's to ignore them. Yeah. Right? When you don't have their attention, right? Number, number one, we have to have their attention. Attention yeah. is the connection between, you know, audience and performer. Mm. And if they're not engaged, then you are definitely not hitting the mark. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and if they start talking amongst themselves, it's game over. Yeah, absolutely. Then you know that you fucked up or, you know, maybe the room's just really shit. Who knows? But, again, that it's a feeling. It's a vibration. It's a sense. It's, yeah, it is. Right? It's that, is it the sixth sense? I don't know. Maybe it's just, a, you know, 
a combination of varying senses working together. But that's the level that you've got to really attune yourself to as a performer. Yeah, that that's true, particularly as a comedian. Cause, yeah. Because as a musician, you can still get up there and play songs in front of people, whether they're ter- whether they're listening that much or not. Yeah, because then yeah, absolutely. Because at the least, you know, they don't have to pay attention to your words to understand what's going on. They can listen to the music, right? Yeah. Um, and as a musician, you're not relying on their response every ten to thirty seconds. No, correct. You can be in your own little world a little bit and just lose yourself and enjoy yourself in the music. Yeah. And you can do that with comedy tool in a way as well, right? Like, um, you definitely want to connect with an audience, but if you're flowing, sometimes you're not even paying attention to the audience. You are performing, right? And you are inside your own performance, but also probably just like, you know, just peeking out. I think of yourself from time to time to see if they're on board. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think, and I, I, you sense that in the longer sense. <coughs> yeah, I right. Think, yeah. When you, you can't really do that in five minutes, right? I think if you're doing like a 15 or a 20, when, you, you know, when you've got to sustain their attention for a period of time and you're really getting into what is your act, yeah. that's when you sort of internalize that, right? It's, beca- it's when you become a little bit formless and identity-less, you know? Right, and you kind of lose yourself in it. Yeah. That happens from, for me on occasion. Yeah, on occasion. It don't, you can't expect it to happen every time, right? Because no. it's a big experience. And you can't make it. You can't force it to no. happen either. No, no, absolutely not. You kind of get lost. If it's going well, I mean, for me, it only happens if things are going well. Mm-hmm. If I'm struggling to hold on to them, I'm, I'm very conscious of what's going on. I can't lose myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Unless, you know, that's in a in more broader sense is just your ego sort of shrinking and or basically shrinking your perception and, you know, you are less free to be abundant in that moment and to be a little bit, like, formless and shapeless and enjoy mm. the present moment because you are concerned, right? Yes, yes. Right. Nothing like fear or concern to completely ruin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. But sometimes the concern is justified. Yeah. It depends on who's in your audience. If you've got a bit of a rowdy crowd and they're very quick to turn and start chatting with each other. I've, I did a gig like that in Geelong a few weeks ago mm. and I found I had to work really hard mm-hmm. to keep their attention. Yep. So it wasn't as enjoyable, I have to admit, you know. Yep. I felt like I was um, had to really have my attention, a little bit like a school teacher in a weird kind yeah, of way. Yeah, you've got you've to you've get the rabble down for sure. Mm, I had to sort of call this guy's name, some to bit, almost like a school teacher. Yeah. I actually did it because you know, he was a birthday boy and he, he and his mates were... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wasn't able to lose myself like that. But yeah. then at another gig where they're on board with you straight away, you can kind of relax into it. Yeah, and I think you're you definitely look. It's it's definitely harder to do in a club set, right? You remember we we have to remember that we're entertainers first. Yeah. Right. You've got to be engaging. You've got to capture the audience. I think those sorts of moments we talk about, like we're talking about these sort of flow states and comedy, are more attuned to if you've got your own audience or if you're doing your hour show or when people are there to see you and you only. Right? Yeah, you're, right. You're afforded that a bit more. Yeah. But if you're doing a tight five or a tight seven and you're part of a lineup show like most gigs are, yeah. you've got to go out there and kill. Right? Yeah. And if you can get to that flow state whilst you're killing, right, then great. But, yeah. you know, for the most part, I like to remember that this comedy is a 10-year apprenticeship. Mm. Okay. So 
at least. Yeah, at yeah. minimum, right? It's a lifelong mastery. Mm. So you can't expect that to be happening particularly early in career, right? As an apprentice, you can't be having those. You I mean, if you get them, great. It's a nice little breadcrumb to say you're going in the right direction. Yeah. But if you're going there to expect that all, you're not really focused on learning the craft. Yeah, that's, that's true because the craft is very conscious. Yes. Like, you know, the writing, editing, punchlines, surprise, the rhythm of it, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's an exercise of deliberate action, right, mm. of that executive frontal lobe of who we are, right? And it's an interesting mix of that real conscious writing and consciousness and then also the flow state, like the... You, yeah. You're setting, you're setting up the... You, with the conscious, with the writing part of it and the preparation, you're setting up the environment in which you can hopefully take off in that yeah absolutely time. it's a framework right mm. I, you know i've always thought about comedy like jazz um yeah right you great jazz musicians can fly around a keyboard or a fretboard or whatever the instrument is and yeah they, and you know that is a flow from the heart of the mind or not usually not from the mind from the heart right when you see a guy or someone really into the moment of what they're doing yeah solos that you know don't really come through you they just come out of you mm. you know yeah but that takes but that again, that ability to do so, you know, they talk about, you know, learn the rules so you can break them like an artist. Mm -hmm. Behind every great jazz musician is thousands of hours of theory and practice and knowing and where to go and where not to go and where you can take risks, turn out and the tone and timing and whatnot. Yeah. Right? So again, similar, same thing with comedy. Yeah. Right? You've got to know your act. You've got to know how to feel comfortable on stage. You've got to know when you've got the audience and you're afforded the opportunity to go deeper with them. Yeah. And, right? and it's a different challenge. It's very, it is cerebral, right? It's that cerebral understanding of understanding what's consciously around. Yeah. Then to get into those unconscious states. It's, it's like now that you've likened it to music, it's technique. Mm. You need to master the technique underneath it to be able to then flow with it, do your solo or riff or yeah, get absolutely. lost in your comedy. It's, it's similar stuff, but you need to have the technique there to hold it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Mm. And so when did you start Aussie Comedy Network? Um, and could you tell us a little bit about what it actually is? Well, that's a good question, funnily enough. Um, <laughs> so. Oh, hang on. Did Footscray Comedy Club or Aussie Comedy Network come first or did they sort of come together because they're a little bit different aren't they a little bit different so i i, I bundle them under one just because it's easy to manage but mm -hmm. the idea of aussie comedy network evolved over a couple of years and i really started working on it uh last year so i only really i mean i only I only launched what acn was in like feb march of this year 2022 yeah yeah yeah, right. yeah. um it's and more an online thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's supposed to be a digital platform. Um, so to, yeah, to go back is that, you know, I've always, how it started was, you know, I looked around at the scene, you know, I've got a business background. Right? Yeah. I'm in business, I'm in marketing. In my day job, I work in technology consulting. Um, so I'm, I, you know, I've put together complex technology solutions for, you know, global organizations. Right. You know, right. so I'm involved yes. in tech solving business problems. I'm looking, you know, I've got a marketing background, a sales background. So I, I look at an environment. How could I improve it? You know, I don't like the term entrepreneur, but I definitely have an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial mindset yep. about how things could be, be done better or be monetized or something like that. You know, being a, just being in the scene for a couple of years, 
you see how disjointed it is, how dysfunctional it is, and you just go, oh, you know, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Yeah, right? yeah, um, a more cohesive, organised fashion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So originally it started, it was going to be just Melbourne Comedy Network and it was just going to be very similar to what you see some Instagram pages doing now where they sort of just put all the gigs in one place so it's easier to market. Yeah. Right? So it's a central, it was supposed to be a central repository of Australian, of Melbourne comedy, mm-hmm. right? So if people were interested in seeing comedy in Melbourne, they could go to the page, find a show that's on that night and then go check it out because yeah. everyone was just marketing their own, you know, marketing poorly their yes. own rooms because the thing is open mic rooms and even curated rooms now, they're run by comedians who have a little bit more now than the average open micer, but they're not business minded people. They're mm. not, they're not, they don't, very few of them have marketing or sales backgrounds, Yeah, right? They yep. don't know actually how to build a show and build an experience that people want to exchange value for. Yeah. I mean, if you think about where comedy was a few years ago, pre- particularly pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. all, of the, all of the shows were basically free, which says that people don't value themselves enough to put a value associated with it. Yeah. Right? They just, yep. because they were so desperate for the stage time, they don't understand that, you know, you've got to curate an experience yeah. that people will enjoy to come back to. And that's how you make money. You've got to have something worth of value. Firstly, you've got to actually value what you do to yeah. put a price against it. Yeah, and yep. people don't, didn't understand that until you know we've seen this great wave of comedy um, post pandemic, or you know even during the pandemic, right? People want to enjoy themselves and laugh and have have people make sense of what the fuck's going on over the mm. last few years. Yeah. So Melbourne comedy was yeah, that was the original idea, and then it just the vision got bigger and bigger over time, um, and the idea was okay. Comedy's going digital. I, you know, we were all locked in our, in our houses and I was seeing all the podcasters in the US and everyone that had a digital platform already and a digital engagement was booming. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because digital is the future. We spend so much time on our phones. Yeah. We, all of our entertainment is on demand. Um, and, you know, it doesn't synthesize the public, you know, the live experience, but certainly it's a good way to get visibility. You know, yeah, well, a lot of comedians now, if they're really serious about wanting to become a professional comedian and move forward, do uh, clips yeah. either of themselves uh, performing on stage or they do some sketch comedy yeah. for, you know, just little sketch comedy clips or they take on a character or something like that and put stuff out fairly regularly. And that's, if you can get on TikTok and stuff like that, some yeah. of them are doing quite well with that. Yeah, they absolutely are. You know, there are some great examples like Blake Pavey and Ruben Solpatias, you know, yeah. some of the guys that were already doing it pre-pandemic like Neil Kahatkar and Lewis Spears, they're all killing it at the moment. Mm. Um, Luke Kidgel as well. And you go, fantastic, great. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's what ACM was, was supposed to be. It's the central repository, you know, it's just basically going, especially a platform where I go, hey, I connect the Australian comedy industry yeah. with the Australian public. Right? So let's say you're looking for an Australian comedy podcast yeah. to, to play. Yeah. Would you have a section where you're showing all the Australian comedy podcasts or is it mainly um, sort of digital online entertainment? Well, I suppose. podcasts are digital. That's right? true. Yeah. So it really is up to them. you know. And yes, I have done that in the past. I've put up like you know Fergus's podcast and clips from Schaefer's podcast and things like that. To be honest, and you know, I'm actually funny that you mentioned this now because I'm actually shifting the direction of what ACN is, um, you know, six or twelve months in. To I'm basically bringing it, turning it into a production house and focusing on just producing things and making it a platform for the stuff that I do. Okay. Because I've found over time is that, you know, and I'll be I'm actually talking about this in my pod later on, 
is that essentially like what the content aggregator of ACN is that it's, it's everything's highly fragmented. Uh, like the Australian comedy scene, it's highly yeah. fragmented, yeah. right? And there's a central repository, but no one, like the collaborate, the effort that's involved in collating and being the curator of that is a lot of effort with not necessarily much return. Yeah, I can understand that. Right, it's essentially because, and the reason, <coughs> the, the reason why that is, is again, there is this, you know, like everyone has this scarcity mindset. So people are saying like, you know, you're taking my content, what's in it for me? What's this about? Oh, right? really? Oh, yeah. To an extent, most people are very happy to have their stuff shared, right? Yeah. But here's the here's you know the realistic value of that is that the ones that know how to create content, who understand there's value in it, they are more they're gonna go, what's in it for me, right? Right. Okay. It's a diff- I've sort of sort of come to realize that what I've essentially made is an Australian comedy content open mic. Okay. Right. Where the ones that are happy to have their stuff shared are probably the you know, early in their creative you know, pursuits. Sure. They don't actually necessarily know how to make content. Right? right. So it's not very high quality content. Correct. Right. In in content or production value. Right. And right. that's a that's an issue because that brings down the overall standard of the platform if that's the kind of stuff that's been correct. uploaded. Yeah, correct. So, you know, I had a I had about ninety percent <coughs> comedians that have agreed to be as part of the network. Mm. Right, and it's just it's simple. The concept was as simple as, "Hey, we'll you know repost your good content. We'll make sure you get tagged." So we, and then ideally, the idea behind it was, you know, it's a collaborative effort. It's it's socialism in a way, right? Yeah. Right. If, you know, the idea is you get your stuff on ACN. It eventually builds the central repository, and people that can, you know, that submit to it and contribute to it regularly, yeah, will benefit from the, from the collective of people pointing the stuff to ACN. So it's a nice idea in theory, just like mm-hmm. communism, right? Yeah, sure. But then, you know, just like communism, it negates the the conflict of self-interest. Yes, right. And the potential output capabilities of the individual to contribute to the greater cause, right? Because what I mean by that is that, like I said, the production value is low, the content writing is low, there was this huge trend and still continues in a way to be just churning out content, Right. I've noticed that. I've right. noticed how people feel they need to put something out every day or yeah. a few times a week. And if you've got the time to put out something good, great. But I think that can also lead to people putting out a lot of rubbish. Yeah. And I was essentially, you know, I don't need to be too critical about it. I was sifting through a bit of rubbish there for a while. Yeah, right. And you go, it's not even making me laugh. So what am I putting it out there representing my name well, and my yeah, brand? Yeah, it's representing you. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, I am actually just I'm going to fold the aggregation part of the brand. Right. And I'm going to keep it as a, as a production house. So, um, like I said, you know, we were just talking about sort of off cam is that I'm learning how to produce things. Like, I know I've increased the production quality of my own podcast. Yep. I'm producing things with Sam from Jambo. How do you say his surname? Gabriel Selassie. Gabriel Selassie. Yes. Gabriel Selassie. It took me a while, don't worry. And he knows, you know, <laughs> we, us, us brown folk with weird names, we know it takes a long time. I stopped, I've stopped correcting people when they get my name wrong. I, don't, I just don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've actually adopted an Indian name when I went to India back in the 90s. Right. So even though it's not the name I was born with, I do know what you mean. Having yeah, to, yeah. And my surname is Timmermans, right. which are Dutch name, okay. which I've always needed to spell out. So I am familiar with having to spell yeah, yeah. out all my names, but Gabri- I keep wanting to call him Gabrielle Selassie. No, it's Gabra Selassie. And it's not, and that's yeah. where I get caught up. Gabra, Gab- Gabra Selassie. Gabra Selassie. Yeah. Hello, Sam. <laughs> G'day, mate. <laughs> Appreciate this. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, wait, because Pradeep is not your original name? No. What's your, what was your pre Well, I don't tell people because when I first got the name and people, and I came back to Australia, right? Because yeah. I'd been travelling overseas for two years, India, and right. went to Japan and worked and made some money and then came back. Mm-hmm. And then people couldn't remember it. I said, what's your real name? And I'd tell them. And then they'd just call me that. Right. And I was like, no, that's, that's not what I want. No, no. It's like your dead name for trans people. In a way, my family still call me that. Mm-hmm. I still see my mum. Yeah. And old friends from way, 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 which I don't have very many, maybe one or two, mm. they call me that. And that's fine because that feels right because they were, that, that was my name at that time. Yeah, that was, that's what they identified you as for the longest period of time. And it's a little bit like a bit of a, a nostalgic thing. Mm. But I wouldn't want people now to call me that because I've been Pradeepa for like... 30 years. Oh, okay. That's a while. So, yeah. yeah fair enough. Yeah, so I know what you mean. Mm. We were talking about Sam. We went back to you and Sam starting... Oh, yeah. So, I'm just, I was talking about ACM being a production house, and that's where I'm sort of focusing my energies now. So, I'm learning... Right. Are you doing that... Would you be... Are you doing that together with Sam? No. So, Footscray Comedy Club is Sam and mine. Right. ACM. And that's live comedy thing. Yeah, that's just that's just um, us doing shows in Footscray. Got that's it. all it is. Yeah. Um, so, originally, like, yeah... Like how Footscray Comedy Club came together, it was pretty straightforward. Um, you know, we were living in Footscray at the time, not together. He was living, funnily enough, so... You met through comedy? Yeah, we met through yeah. comedy. Um, so yeah. Sam and I's origin story is um, we were both going to Mad Dog around the same time. Yeah, yeah, I remember Mad Dog. Yeah, yeah. So um, so we were going to Mad Dog together. We just got to know each other, connected a little bit. Yeah. Um, Mike who was a previous runner of Mad Dog. Mark had, Barnes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Mike Barnes yeah. had previously offered the room to Sam to run. He wanted to get rid of it. Yep. And he was like, uh, I don't know if I want to do this because it's it just solo, managing it solo. Yeah. And then Mike offered it to me. Okay. And then I was like, oh, it's very flattering, but I don't know if I can want to run this. And he's like, well, speak to Sam because um, I offered it to him in the past. So we were like, yep. okay. We had known each other for a few months, you know, had connected over some stuff, you know, yep. mutual comedy acts and people that we really liked. And then I was like, well, do you want to run Mad Dog together? Ah. And so we did. And that was a fucking nightmare. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, it's just because you're running it, you know, we're early, very early in. I was only, I was less than a year in or about oh, a year right. in wow. when Mike offered me Mad Dog to run because he knew I was a, a decent guy. And I, you knew that I would, you know, look after the place. And he probably sensed you had organisational skills. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. A little bit. Right. Um, okay. So then that was, yeah, so we started running it together. But, uh, you know, particularly when you're, you're new as an open micer and then you've, you know, the scene is a bit shit back in, back then where, you know, all of the acts were, you know, the, the, the gig pigs and people that were really trying to push for gigs all the time, you know, they'd press you to give them spots and there was that power play about, you know, comics that are a bit older than you in comedy years. Right. Oh, I see. So then, you had comedians, because you were early, even though you were running the room, because you were early in, you had some comedians who had more years under their belt being a bit more pressured because they had the experience, which made them think they could dominate you a little well, bit. Well, a little bit, you know, they would be, you know, hawkish for spots and getting on early so they could do other spots. And, these, you know, you're always yeah. playing the favourites game and there's always, oh, you know, yeah. everyone's pot pressuring you. Like, you know, it's a lot of take. 
It's a lot of take and a lot of give back, right? Because everyone's so keen to be, be a comedian and get to the grind, right? And then so that stuff in, in, in the pressure of maintaining, even though it's just a dog shit open mic and meant a lot to me. Yeah. Um, you know, my own comedy writing suffered and I don't feel like doing comedy because I was just, I felt, you know, so pressured by the situation and making sure the room ran well. Right. Because then, you know, I've got my own ideas of how the room could be improved and how we could market it better and yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So eventually we gave it up um, after about a year. Okay. Uh, but we were, we were still good friends. And then eventually what actually happened was Sam met, Sam was hanging out with me and a couple of my cousins. I've got two female cousins. Um, and we were just sort of hanging out and they were looking for a new roommate. Okay. And they thought, uh, they were asked if they would, they asked me if Sam could actually live with them because, you know, we were just, you know, we were getting close yeah. like, as a group, but I was a bit hesitant about the first. I didn't really like mixing family and I was very, I kept my world very separate. Yeah. And then I was like, yeah, all right. Because if there's a falling out of some sort, when people live together, that happens. And then if you're close to everyone, it can be difficult. Oh, such as that. I just kept yeah. my, I just kept my family world away from the rest of my life. Yeah, fair I, enough. I got a lot of trauma tied up with that and that's, you know, the constant yeah. source of my therapy at this point. Got uh, it. So, yeah, I just didn't like to mix the world. Sure. But, you know, it ended up being a great thing. We got a lot closer, particularly during the pandemic, because this was just pre So he moved in with them? Yeah, he moved in with yeah. them. So we lived in Footscray, like in different other sides together. Um, he had a connection to Jambo somehow, um, yeah. which is the venue. Yeah. And he's like, during the pandemic, we were like, you know, we've got to really start making things happen because there's an opportunity here. People, like I always said, the demand for comedy would never go away. Mm-hmm. People want to enjoy themselves, want to have a laugh. Right, they want to, you know, they they want to have experiences because they've been cooped up for so long. Yeah, yeah. So Sam sort of, you know, finagled me back in a little bit into running a room with him. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was Jambo, and we ran it uh, after the first major lockdown. So is that when it started? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the first major, so in between lockdowns. Yeah, between the first and the second lockdowns. We yeah, because we had a few months there where we thought we were free. Yeah, it was still a bit, <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? A little bit, little bit. Um, and that's when you started? Yeah, and all the shows sold out, and it was really good. Um, oh, so you started uh, charging for tickets for yeah. from the word go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ten, just 10 bucks. Like, if you can't give up 10 bucks, something's wrong with you. You know what I mean? No, I get you. I get you. And you were using your techniques from work to um, promo the gig? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's pretty straightforward stuff. Like, it's just, yeah. I'm using my marketing background and my sales background just to market the show. Like... You know, you know, we're setting the ethos of the brand, right? It's important to me. We're a community-focused organization, right? It's, we evolved to Footscray Comedy Club because we knew that this place is going to grow. And if we lean into the community aspect, then people want to get involved, right? People have a real community value here in Footscray. So you were uh, contacting community groups and maybe the surrounding businesses chatting with them? Well, yeah. And... So essentially what we did was, you know... Because maybe if I'm not wanting to take all your secrets, but no, no, we're gonna but, we're gonna give them away very but, soon. But maybe if if we get people on the scene giving a few pointers as to how to run a room well, we might get better. Oh rooms. no! So yeah, Sam and so Sam and I have been playing this for ages. We're right. actually gonna do so. Sam's producing a series at the moment called Comedians on Comedy, where he speaks to different comedians about their process. He's got some great acts, you know, some established acts that he's working with. He wants to, we've, and we've talked about this for ages about running a workshop for people. We're not selfish about how we've made Footscray Comedy Club work. Yeah, because it works really well. It works really well. Really right? well. Like, we've had gigs that have had 150 people in them. 
A right? jambo. Not a jambo. Oh, God, no. God, I was going to say, how do you feel? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. Jambo. With Pride and some other venues and like getting government funding right. within the first 18 months. So when there might be a festival of some sort or well, a community we, event. Yeah, so we, we, we want to do some more community stuff. So getting funding from the council and running fun gigs. We're sort of keeping a ceiling on what we do. Like we, we were going to push to another. So we've got this jambo, which is only 30 seats. Right. I've got Pride. So Sam didn't want to be part of Pride because, you know, he didn't really feel like he had a skin in the game there because it's uh-huh. a queer comedy show. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not queer, but I just like the idea of running a show in that venue because it's a beautiful venue and just, again, helping the community out. So yeah. I run that with Maddie Weeks. Oh, yeah. And they're my conduit to the queer world and the queer comedy scene, essentially. They and, do all the booking. And which venue is that at? That's at Pride of Our Footscray Bar. So there's a, there's, a, there's a queer bar on on Barclay Street just around the corner. Oh, okay. It's a fantastic venue. Oh, so it's very close. Can you... Because we're quite close to Jambo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that on purpose. Oh, right. And the other venue with the queer comedy is very close. across. Five minute walk. Oh, great. Yeah, everything's walking distance. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm kind of lazy that way. (laughs) No, but it works, man. Yeah, yeah. It works because then you're close and you don't have to get in the car all the time. No, you know, I can get loose a little bit and it's fun. Yeah, Um, you can walk home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you get there early, set up, all that stuff. Yeah, well, I do. Right? Yeah, so I'm usually yeah. the first one there and the last, last one to leave. Yeah, like, I've put of a lot of effort into these things. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, People don't realise that when there's a good night, it takes a lot of effort behind the scenes to make it run smoothly. Yeah, pe- producing is a shitty, thankless job sometimes. Yeah. Um, and people, that's what, again, people don't understand that when they run rooms. You mm. know, it's given me a lot more empathy for people like Tim Hewitt and Carl Chandler, even. Um, because I understand the pressures, right? Yeah. About just running a good show and the pressure that comes with that. Because, um, so yeah, I really, you know, yeah, it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work behind the scenes. Yeah, you and you definitely can't run rooms uh, for money. Like Jambo, like the gigs you run are profitable, right? But I earn way more money, um, you know, in my day job. Yeah. I don't even. We don't even take a profit at all from any of the gigs we do. It all just goes back into the business. We've got a couple of grand saved up, but we just, you know, we'll save that for an idea or, you know. Do you pay yourself some money for the effort that you put in? No. No? No. You don't think you might burn out after a while if that keeps going? I've already burnt out. I took, a, <laughs> I took a month. I had to take a month off. And I took all of August off and pretty much everything. I did the bare minimum that I could um, because I was doing too many things at once with the comedy network and my day job. Last month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only got back. I got. I went overseas. Um, I went to the US for two weeks and I only got back last Sunday. Oh wow! Yeah. Was that for ple- for uh... mix of business and pleasure? So okay. mostly pleasure. Um, I hadn't been overseas in four years. Work. Um, so I worked for a big tech company. Oh, so they sent you over there? Yeah, so every year they have a, a global sales kickoff because I mean right. sales. So, right. you know, big tech money. So they book, it's called Impact. It's by com- my company is called Cisco. They're a big networking company. And essentially what they do is they get every salesperson from the globe. They're the sixth biggest tech company in the world. 15,000 people in Las Vegas for four days. <laughs> Are you serious? No, I'm, ser- I'm 100% serious. They book out, they fill out three oh, whole hotels shit. on the strip. Oh my God. They spend about $100 million on this project every year. But they're a twenty-one billion-dollar company, so they can do it. It's a tall tax write-off. Oh, so it's a it's one company, but they're all over the they're all over yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, Cisco was probably the first big tech company, but people don't know it unless you're in the technology world. Before tech became cool. Holy, yeah. so are there a bunch of subsidiaries or? No, no, it's just one big global company. Wow, three so, hotels, three big hotels from people all over the world. Yeah, fifteen thousand people came to the event. 
Oh my god! And I got a beautiful hotel, man. It was, I had it on this. It was a great view on my own king king bed, hot tub, dude. Here the strip. Oh, it was amazing, oh, dude. It was great, right? And then and they, did you have some leisure time? As oh well? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, too much. <laughs> you know. it was my second time to Vegas. So it's at Vegas. I took it. I went a couple of days beforehand. It was also my birthday. Oh, so I went nice. A, yeah, I went a couple. Of, I went for a couple of days beforehand. It's my second time to Vegas, so I know what to expect. Um, yeah, by the end of the trip, by the end of the Ve- even just the Vegas part, I was like, man, my serotonin is gone. Oh, because it's all been used up. All partying, not a lot of sleep, not a lot of eating. It's hot. You're walking twenty five thousand steps a day. You know, you're up and you're down. Wow. Weed's legal. Cocaine's easy to access. Like, you know. Wow. It, it was a pretty hectic week. It's it's like it's part. It literally really is party town. Isn't yeah, it? it's party town. It's it, it's Sin City, right? Right. It's, it's not my vibe. But, you know, it's, it was interesting to dabble in, in it. Yeah, I get what you're saying. You wouldn't want to be there all the time. No. It'd, no. it'd drive you mental. But yeah. for a short time, it's exciting. It's a peak experience, right? Yeah, got it. Right? Got you it. go there for a good time and you fuck off again and, you you know, you rue the day. Um, but I also <laughs> went to, I went to um, New Orleans and I went to Austin as well. Oh, is the jazz scene still happening there? Because, of course, they went underwater with the... Yeah, with ha- Katrina. Katrina. Yeah. Ha- has that come back? That, I don't know about the jazz scene. I went to Preservation Hall, which is like, you know, the heritage um, area for, you know, big band jazz and New Orleans jazz. Um, there's definitely some, it's definitely lively, lots of lots of bands and lots of music around for sure. And I really enjoyed that. Same with Austin. Austin's like one of the music capitals of the US. Yeah, I've heard that. And now with Joe Rogan living there, it's going to become the probably one of the big yeah, comedy yeah. capitals as well. Oh, so I was this close to Joe Rogan when I went there. How's that? insane it was um i talked about it on my pod it just came up um i went to he's so he runs two nights a week at a club called the vulcan small 150 200 seater okay um so yeah he just he brings in a bunch of comics does a regular show and he does his hour at the end he just works out his hour so i went i bought a ticket the ticket the place is obviously pretty much sold out mm-hmm. but then so i was like in a shitty section at the back and they're like, okay, you're at the back, but we have this upgrade option. If no one shows up to take their table, um, you can pay for 10 bucks and get a downstairs seat. Like, you know, and I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, sign me up. So I'm sitting there praying that it comes because where I was seated, I couldn't even see the stage because there's right. two, le- two levels. It's right. like a balcony, but it's not like a, you know, it's not balcony. I have to look at a screen to watch the comedy if I was to stay where I was. Oh, so it's a balcony, but it wasn't like a the Majesty's Theatre no, or no, something no. like that. Correct, correct. So, right. so the good seats yeah. had the balcony, and you could see over the balcony, over the into the acts. Right. Like the shitty. I'm talking about nosebleeds. You're you're essentially just watching TV. All right. You're screens. up in what they call the gods. Yeah, yeah. In a traditional theatre. Yeah, yeah. Right up the top. Yeah. <laughs> so very fortunately, I was able to get um, the upgrade because yeah, no great. one got the tables. It was me, this other lady, and a couple of random dudes. And they're like, yeah, come down. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, where is this place? And the table is literally like here, like right here. And that's the stage where you are. You are right at the front. Front and center. Like, oh, obviously, as a punter, you fucking hate that seat because you're scared you're going to get heckled. And I got heckled a little bit. Oh, no, like, I, yeah, so I had, um, you know, one of the comics, Brian Simpson, had a, you know, a bit of a jab at me. I don't care. I'm a comic. I, can, I, just, yeah. I just let it flow, right? I take it as a compliment. Actually. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But, you know, it's it's like Tony Hinchcliffe, um, Duncan Trussell, some of Joe's other opening acts that are fucking great. And then Joe, the man himself, is literally doing comedy 
this close. I could have touched him. <laughs> I could have I could have reached out and touched him, and I'd have been beat to a pulp if I did, because like you know you can't they, they block you you know they put your phone in a bag and things like that. Like it's very private because it's their material. They're working their material out. Of course. And that's worth millions to Joe, right? Yeah, because that's going to end up being his Netflix special. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So you and as a comic, you know you don't want that. You see people filming your gigs sometimes. You're like, oh what no, the fuck yeah, are you doing? yeah, no. I've heard people recorded getting really shitty with people that and now yeah. and it's it's um intellectual property. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but yeah, like I was there just like gobsmacked that I'm just looking at one of the most powerful men in the world. He's stoned off his face just looking at his hour. He's got a giant booger in his left nostril. And I'm just like, I can't believe that I'm staring at Joe Rogan's booger right now. Because being right up the front, you would be able to look straight up his nose. Yeah, he couldn't do anything but. I just, I just sort of lean back. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was insane. You had to lean back. You had to lean back because, like, that's how close the stage I was. It's like being right up the front at the movie theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to like literally like sort of slouch back a little bit so I could get full view, or else I'd be like completely craning my neck. Oh my god! But I was that close, that fucking close, oh and that was god. the first day I was in Austin as well. Oh man! Yeah, yeah. That just sounds amazing. Oh, it's insane. So you I'm... must have been peaking. You must have been going. I can't believe I'm here. It's one of the most insane days of my life. That whole day. That whole day was insane. Oh, and I I'm, I might be moving to Austin. Like, I'm it's very seriously considering at this point. Oh, man. This, if you've got the capacity, like, visa-wise and ability yeah. to work over there, I don't know what, if you've got any kind of passport that would have you no, so be I, able to get a green card or whether you can get a temporary visa. But that is that just sounds like it's a creative, like, gushing like a, it's a well at the it, moment. It's, you an know? it's an intellectual and creative hub. So, mm. you know, it's, it's not just global. Joe. Yeah, globally. It's like Joe's there, Elon Musk is there, um, Tim Ferriss lives there, Lex Friedman. So, you know, all. Duncan Trussell's moved there now. Yeah, Duncan's there, Tom Segura's there. Um, there are heaps of big comics moving there at the moment um, as well. Like, and it's only a city of 2 million people, it's the size of Melbourne. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's a beautiful place. Um, it's a liberal city in a, you know, obviously conservative state. Yeah. So that's why it's a bit of a panacea for people. Is that like... And a bit know, of an oasis in a way. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, right. So, like... Oh, wow, man. Yeah. That sounds very fucking exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, ever since I got back, I've just been thinking about how I can get there. So I've applied for jobs already. Um, oh, so working in the area that you work in, there's a there's good a, possibility you could get a job over there. There's, and there's a tech room there as well. So I work in tech. I work in big tech. Yes. So there's actually... I've already applied for roles in Microsoft. Um, and I'm, or I might try and get a job... Oh, in Austin. So it wouldn't necessarily be Silicon Valley. It could no, be... No, no, it's Austin. Huh. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> you go. That's the aim right now, is to give it, try a couple of years there. Yes. Because, I mean, I, I'd essentially just be lifting and shifting my lifestyle from here to there. Um, because again, I work in big tech during the day. It's very flexible. I primarily work from home. Yeah, right. Uh, most of my customers are used to the digital world because they're all in IT, so they're, they're totally cool with it. Still getting big tech money because I'm selling complex technical solutions. And then in my spare time, which I have a fair bit of, I focus on creative pursuits. Is it my pod? Is it being into music? Is it you know doing more comedy? Do I produce a show in Austin? I don't know. But I, again, all everything that I've honed over the last twelve to eighteen months post pandemic. I could, you know, leverage that. Yeah, well, you've got all the skills that would just fit right into place into lots of opportunities by the sounds of things. Yeah, pretty much. You know, both tech-wise and comedy-wise. And I think it's also a, 
great music scene as well. Music scene, it's a spiritual hub as well. So a lot of the people that I look up to spiritually and a lot of my advisors in life live there. Right, like I said, Tim Ferriss is great, you know, for the four hour work week and about, you know, he's going into his optimization and peak performance. Yeah. Aubrey Marcus, again, I talked about this, I talked about this in my pod last week, but Aubrey Marcus is the founder of On It, which is a. a I've heard him, isn't that the dietary supplement? So Alpha Brain. It's a new product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. heard Joe, because I listen to podcasts at work all the mm. time because I work in a kitchen by myself. So I've got right. eight hours a day yeah, to yeah, listen sure. to podcasts, which is part of the reason why yeah. I started my own. Um, and what are we, what are we just talking about? Sorry. Yeah, no, I'm talking about like us and like people there. But yeah, so Joe. Oh, on it. Yeah, yeah, so I've heard him. I've I listened. Of course, I started listening to Joe Rogan. Now I listen to a whole bunch of different podcasts, but I always yeah. go back to his sometimes if he's got a good guest. Yeah, and he talks about Alpha Brain every single time. Yeah, and talks about on it. I think he's he's part, part of the owner. company. Yeah, so he's part owner. The CEO Aubrey is the is founder it Mark of it. Aubrey? Marcus Aubrey Marcus. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah and he's yeah. like a very spiritual being. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and it's a spiritual led leadership and things like that. Things that I really align to. Um, so he so, lives in Austin as well. Right. On it was founded in Austin. Got it. Right. It's got. It sounds like it's just a really hub, creative place for lots of things right now. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. And probably a bit of that would be the fact that people are getting the fuck out of Los Angeles by the sounds of things. Yeah. As well. Um, you know, it's 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 falling apart from political bullshit um, and lack of infrastructure, and you know, it's it's getting a little bit too left leaning there, unfortunately. Did like, you go to LA? I've been at LA a few years ago, uh, 2018, and it was seemed a bit rough then. But people have talked about the real collapse of it now and how unsafe it is because they are starting to, they're starting to dismantle like things like things that are far, far left ideology seem to be taking over the place. Things mm. like defunding the police, right? There as a reality. Yeah, man, insane, insane. Man. Not to mention, I mean, the thousands and thousands and thousands of homeless people yeah. there. Yeah, that they've got no handle on that. And yeah. it seems not no effective plan in place. Yeah. And that kind of atmosphere is going to breed crime, of course, mm-hmm. because people do not have enough. Yeah. And when you do not have enough, you have to, and you don't have money, you have to steal yeah. to get what you need. It's a necessity thing. Yeah. Um, and then once you, if you defund the police and you've got heaps of homeless people without any resources, that's just... That just sounds like hell. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Like people with families and people that you know feel for their own safety are fucking up out of there. And the taxes are high as well. So if you're a creative, right, the tax rates high in Texas. There's no state tax, mm. right? Mm. Like I've done the I've done the math. Like the the, the federal tax rate in the U.S. is twenty percent. Okay, it's flat. It's not. It's not like incremental like we have here. So, they don't have a you know goes for if you don't. No. If you earn this and below, it's nothing. And if you earn Correct. from here to here, it's this. And... It's a flat tax rate. Oh, okay, right. So it's, yeah, 19.4% if you're an alien, which would mean like a non-resident, right? A non-citizen, it's 30%. But that's still flat. Right, so why is it more in... So it's state taxes. So taxes vary from state to state. Oh, gotcha. So California has like 18% tax or something like that, or 20% tax. It's a state tax in some things when it comes to income but, as an organisation. If you go to Texas, there's no state tax. So that's one of the reasons why Joe went to the move to Texas is because he got a hundred, hundred and twenty million dollar contract and he would have to give twenty percent of it, maybe more, in state taxes to California. Right. But doesn't he have to take 
pay some income tax in Texas? Yeah, he pays income tax, right? And then obviously he's got creative accountants that will, you know, minimize that just like every other big corporation does, right? But the idea of, you know, is going, well, LA's falling apart. What am I paying 20 to $30 million in taxes for to the state of California when the infrastructure doesn't even support, you know, a mm. healthy, manageable lifestyle for the people around me? Mm. And that's why you move, right? It's it makes sense to me. So he still pays income tax, but it's just less tax. I'm I'm not very familiar with all the different taxes, so I don't really understand. I, I a, I'm only a couple of steps ahead of you, right? I'm definitely not a tax expert, but that's essentially one of the key reasons that he moved. Yeah, well. I've heard them talk about that, but I look, it doesn't really matter what the whole you know whether it's income tax or sales tax or yeah, whatever it is, whatever it is, that's there's more tax. In it. But funny thing, last night at a gig, I met the man who wrote up the draft wrote up the policies and everything for the GST. Really? And he calls himself Mr. GST. And he told me straight up, and I felt like going, dude, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be telling everyone you did that because the whole country was fucking pissed off with you and John Howard at the time. Yes. And he's got a number plate and it's got Mr. GST on his number plate. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he's, yeah. an old, he's an older dude. Of like course he is. Of course he is. He's a, he's a liberal policy tax writer. Of course he is. Yeah, he doesn't care. He would have got paid millions of dollars in consulting fees, whether he was, you know, a figment, a part of the Liberal Party, or maybe he worked for a consulting firm like PwC, you know, one of these big government advisors. I just yeah. found it so strange that he was boasting about it because I felt like going, no one, you're, I said, you're a bit like a parking inspected man. He's not a man of the people. He's definitely, I mean, he's no. smelling his own farts at this point, right? Yeah. Someone that's, someone that's egotistical enough to put Mr. GST and call himself Mr. GST in the first person. Yeah, and tell me, like, I'd never met him before, and within five minutes, within three minutes, he'd told... It was his way of big-noting himself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which I found incredibly bizarre. I mean, people operate in strange ways. What's he compensating for is the real question. How small is his dick? Well, maybe this was his only... This is the only thing he did in his life that actually made a difference in some capacity, even though everybody hated it except the government. Yeah, maybe. Maybe feels important. Yeah. It, I mean, it definitely makes him feel important. What was it? What was Mr. GST license plate splashed across? Like a Lambo or a Ferrari? I didn't see the shit? car. I didn't see the Probably car. Probably an old Holden Senator or something like that. Probably <laughs> one of those old, you know, big sedans that the gov- old government car. <laughs> Still got a 1996 <laughs> Holden BN <laughs> old government or car. Some Ford, shit. Ford Fairmont or something. Yeah, like yeah. It's got, a, it's, got a, it's got a very nice gear. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, we were just talking about taxes and all that shit. So, yeah, yeah. Austin, well, get, keep us posted on, on how you're yeah. going and whether you're going to leave or oh, yeah. Yeah, going to yeah. go and do that. And, and that, Well, that's part of the thing. That's part of the reason why I'm changing the direction of ACN as well is that, you know, um, I'm not going to run a digital platform from Australia for Australians from Austin. No, that's not going to happen. I mean, you yeah. could, but it wouldn't make any sense. Make any you'd you'd sense. be wanting to make the most of the environment that you're living in at the time. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, you know, I've, I've come to realise it. it ACM, that, that content aggregator is really just an open mic. And I don't, I don't run open mics for a reason, mm. right? Because I'm yeah. about quality, not quantity. Got it. And so how does it look? How would it look now that you're just producing your own stuff? Are you still asking for contributions from other people at all? Or just 
how does this how does this look? I basically close the doors. I, mean, I don't really have all the answers to that right now because mm-hmm. I've only sort of made the decision honestly in the last week. Right. Like you're one of the first people to know. Like right. there are people inside the circle that don't necessarily know yet. Um, so, you know, there's a bit of exclusive for you. Well, I feel privileged. Yeah, enjoy. Yeah, ahead of the kid. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't know yet, but it's probably just going to be a production house, right? So I'll keep the brand and the company, like it's good to have the company as a, as an asset for tax reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but it probably just become yeah, collaborating with people that I'm closer, that I trust, really. So creating your own videos. Yeah, so I've got sketch ideas. I had I was in pre-production for a podcast series for YouTube that I might work on. But again, now with Austin, I'm like, you know, maybe it just takes a backseat for now. Right. Um, and then I just focus on myself for a bit. So but, Aussie Comedy Network isn't, you're, is sort of on the getting to the back burner a little bit little at bit, the moment. A little bit for now. Yeah. I've got to yeah. realign and expect. And it's really about the Austin thing. Um, if anything, like I, you know, what happened was I had, you know, some situations like happening, sort of realizing that ACN wasn't going in the direction I wanted it to. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a, it's a bold experiment, right? Sure. Like what I'm doing does not have a blueprint. No one's really done this before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or it's focused on a niche like this which mm. is a very particular niche. And what I've come to realize is, yeah, it's just not, the content is not there. The quality of content to establish a brand isn't there yet, mm. right? Because people need to get the runs on the board. Yeah. So again, I'm just curating open micers of content and comedy. Yeah, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. So it's like, okay, well, I can't build a, a business on that. No. And it's not like I'm trying to make money off it, but it's just even not worth putting out there yet. You, you basically, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like showing off the, the carpentry apprentice's first table. Yes. Right? I'm selling, yes. I'm showing off a bunch of first tables. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I gotcha. And you don't want to do that because that's not how you want to represent yourself. Correct. You want to wait until the table is looking I want schmick. To, I'm trying to be a craftsman here. Yes. Right? Yeah, I you're run, representing your brand. Yeah. I'm a, like, why do I run curated shows? Because I want to create an experience. That's what's important for me and Sam at Footscray Comedy Club, right? How yeah. we do anything is how we do everything. We don't focus, the problem is another thing is like, and I'll talk about this on that thing I do with Sam, is that like what comedian producers don't understand is that you have to create an experience for the audience. Yeah. People that get into running gigs don't understand that. Yeah. And they fall very easily, very quickly into the trap of putting the show on to get stage time. Yes. And getting their friends stage time. And yeah. putting leverage inside the scene. Which is very self-centered. Yes, but you have to be self-centered or you are, you are self-centered by default mm. because you're trying to, still trying to figure out who you are and you're trying to use this as leverage to develop your own career as opposed to actually having a genuine passion and love for entertaining people. You know, you know, you right. like it, yeah. But are you, you know, you really that comes to different self-definition of who you are depending on where you're at in your comedy journey, right? Is that people think you know most of comedy is done for validation, right? To self-validate. Yeah, right? yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. Um, and then it gets to a point where you actually really enjoy the audience feedback, like. For a, lot of t- for a lot of comedians early on, the audience feedback is validation for I'm funny, I've had this idea that I am funny. Yes. Right? Yes. And then they identify so deeply with the idea of and the concept of being a comedian that they invest so much of their emotional energy into it that it becomes that survival mode. Yeah. Because they put all their emotional and identity eggs in that basket. Mm. 
and, and when things go wrong, that's when drama occurs in the scene or people just do weird shit or yeah. you, know, you wonder what the hell's that person about. Yeah. Yeah, go, going down a negative spiral. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Because they, because they are, yeah, all in, but they're all in on a weak foundation of comedy, right? Because they're probably just a few years in. Yes. Or, and they haven't got much else going on in the rest of their lives, usually, right? Yeah, Comedians yeah. are dysfunctional people. Generally, I've, yeah. I've always said I'm a highly functional person and a highly dysfunctional individual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's... That makes sense. And that, that, that's what differentiates me from other people in this. And I think about yeah. it a bit differently. And so does Sam, because we are, we're adults. Yeah. You know, we're in our early 30s. We've got successful careers. We've got other mm. eggs in parts. We've identified and invested to other parts of our personality in our lives. Yep. Yes, we're dedicated to comedy, right? We'll never leave it. It's who we are. Yeah. But we don't have to go all in and think that shit's going to fall apart when, you know, you don't get that gig or, you know. Well, you're not going to lose your whole identity or yeah. feel like you're a total failure and you're worth nothing or, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And we understand that it's re- you need to have, you need to cultivate a good audience of people to enjoy your craft. And yeah. how do you do that? You create an experience that they enjoy and they want to come back to. Yeah. Like we have heaps of return people that come back to Footscray Comedy Club. That is awesome. Yeah, and we love it. That is awesome. Are you and Sam, you did mention before you, you were going to let people know, because I said I don't necessarily want to know all your secrets. No, we want to give away the secrets. Of how to create a good room. Yeah, absolutely. We just haven't got around to doing it because we're so busy people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've thought about this for months and now we'll put it as part of a series. Like, oh, you know, as part of what I was going to do for ACN was to just run a workshop and, he was, and we were supposed to do it. Oh, so th- was this something you were going to do online or something you were going to do live or well, we, have people buy a ticket and come? or what? Something like that. We haven't really decided the details, but I've right. already written, written a lot of it because honestly, like, again, we're not, tr- we, no one's going to beat us at our game. Right? No, we, you guys we, are great at what you do. Yeah, and we know that. The only people that we get annoyed with is when they try and start rooms in the Footscray. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. And you go, well, what are you doing? And they've all died off, to get that right, because they don't know how to create an experience like we do. Yeah. But my honest belief, and this is something I've toyed with for a long time, and I've, you know, if I had the time to do it, maybe I would, is that we could, I've always thought about systemizing and documenting end-to-end and sort of helping the process of what does a good room look like yep. and giving it and basically assigning people regions, right? Oh, okay. So like if the, this may not work, right? But this has been something that I've always thought of. Mm. Like you get two good, two to three good room runners in every sort of section of Melbourne. I always, you know, I, I sort of like think of eight sections, right? Inner west, inner north, south, east, outer, yep. right? Yep. You could get... With the right, with the systems that we've put in place, you could get a good monthly going in all of those places across Melbourne, right? It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be crazy. It could be a nice 30 to 50 seater yep. that you have time to market. You have a whole month to market because it. Because you're doing it monthly instead of weekly. Correct. Yep. Right? And then you, if you've got eight, you know, eight to 10 good monthly shows that mm. are getting a good amount of people, mm. you could rotate people. You could rotate acts around those various gigs. People venues would make, or yeah, around the various venues. Yeah. yeah. People would make a decent amount of money because you actually could charge 15 or 20 bucks because it's an experience for these people. Yeah. Yep. Right? Yep. And you, again, you could create this thriving scene of actual good paid for comedy. Right? Because that's one of the things that I lament about why I'm sort of pulling away from ACN is the lack of community inside the comedy scene itself. And right. it goes all the way to the top. Right? right? Like Because you think about this, like in America... 
when you have like when you've got a great if you've become a good act mm-hmm. you become a good act because you're probably open for somebody else that was good and they've given you a chance and they take you around and you get your legs that way yeah we don't have anything like that here no we don't have that go on the road with another comedian set up no, we um, just don't correct or like you know there are people there are great people that are going out doing country gigs like Jared Goundry and yeah. people that have got really a lot of drive and they are taking these people out right but they, like, they're, they're, they're contacting well in the past anyway yeah. they were contacting the venues themselves negotiating the terms themselves and yeah. going out there themselves it's not something that was already yeah. set up that's, and that's what I mean is that uh, that's, that's another point is that the Melbourne comedy scene and the Australian comedy scene up until you get to your, your established venues like your comedy um, the comics lounge the comedy store comedy lounge right everything from that little down is really up to enterprising comedians like myself like Jared like anyone else that's running rooms well yeah to actually establish the infrastructure to create shows, good shows. Yeah. And that's the problem is a lack of information, a lack of education on what that is. Both yeah. in the operational side of what a run into a good show and also the mindset you need to have around it. And that's what's important is to go, hey, if you're going to run a show, you don't run it for the money, right? You, because the sign of a good show isn't if it's, even if it's profitable, if, if it's self-sustaining. Right, because yeah. the money is not important. It's mm. the quality of the stage time and mm. the experience of the audience that's important. Money is just the mechanism that keeps things, you know, moving. It's the fluid. Getting, I think it helps. Um, how can I say this? Uh, it does help to make some money because if I think you do end up burning out. If yeah, you make nothing at all. Yeah, you do make money, and that's, but, I'm, but if you're going into it to make the money, oh, right. there are way better uses of your time to earn money. In oh, life. I get you. I get you. Right? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. You know, some of the some of my most validating moments in comedy have been paying for things using comedy money. Right. Mm. I'm not. So I'm not saying that. But don't make this your living. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I get you. I get you. It is a passion project. I got it. Right. Yeah. And even at our level, when me and Sam were in the depths of it, we were work, we were spending an extra forty hours a month each. Wow! Getting this shit set up, creating content, booking acts, um, putting our schedules together, organizing the venues—like it's not it's not an easy task. No. Okay, and that, that's what people don't understand, right? I've had multiple room owners come to me and ask for help, and I'm happy to give it to them. Mm. We're not hiding anything. We just don't have the time to be appealing to <laughs> everyone because really, it's not our responsibility to do that. Oh, I, it's not, it's yeah. not at all. It's, but it's really nice to know and get the word out there that you're willing to, uh, share. I can't think of uh, techniques. Uh, I can only think of the word secrets because Jared Gandry sort of gave me a few tips that he said, oh, well, you know, Billy and I figured it out and I don't want to give away all our secrets. Yeah. And you're, and you're saying, I'm happy to give it away yeah. how, how it works. Um, <clears throat> because I think there are some things people can do that, there, I'm not at all um, savvy in that mm. respect. So I'm like, well, how the fuck do you get people in the door, you know? Yeah. And, but then also there's a great room in Frankston at the moment called Humdinger. Yeah, that Dave Greaves? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen, I've heard that's a really good room. Yeah, yeah. it is a great room. Great. I think the next step for them would be to start charging some money. They're and not charging. They're not charging. Ah, oh, man, charge 10 bucks. I think that he could 
afford to charge $10 and people would still come. Yes, yes, but absolutely. nonetheless, at this stage, it's, it's, it is a great room. And I mm. did MC there and, and I got, you know, a bit of, I got some money, which was great. Mm-hmm. You know, they pay the MC. Yep. It's not a huge amount of money. It's like 40 bucks, but it's enough for pay, for pay for the petrol. Yeah. Get down there and back. And it makes me feel good about myself, you know. Yeah. And it's going to have me want to go back there because it's not going to cost me... Because otherwise, if it's especially with a suburban gig, you're actually out of pocket. Yeah. If you don't get paid. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be a like it's the same in Geelong. Blaze mm. has a good room running there. Yeah. You know Blaze White. Yeah, I know Blaze. Yeah, yeah. So it's a similar sort of thing, and they're getting people in the door. Yeah. Look, absolutely right. I mean, I never expect to make a cent from comedy, nor do I lean on it at all. Mm. Like I'm, you know, I'm on a very good income um, as a single man um, in my day job, right? And that, and that affords me the possibility to think le- less in survival mode about my own comedy career. Yeah, gotcha, too, gotcha. Right? And it gives you the uh, money to be able to buy uh, equipment and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm well financed. It's just I've got to think about the things I want to invest in. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. You should get paid and you need to be getting into the practice of getting paid. But that culturally inside comedy, particularly in Melbourne, I can't speak for the rest of the country, has only really come to fruition post-pandemic when people when I, when people were like, yeah, the demand for live experience is so strong that people will be willing to charge. But they will. Yeah. yeah. And but then interestingly enough, like a night like Spleen that's mm. been there for, gosh, over 12 years now. Yeah. Or 10 years now, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, they're really well established, run really well, but that's also free. Yeah, but when Carl was running that, you know, in limited groups, he would charge a premium for those tickets. It'd be like 20, 25 bucks. And then because Spleen is a, a good open mic, Spleen would be getting money from, like, Carl's smart. His deals involve the venue paying him some money. So right. Spleen would be giving him something because it's, you know, it's, it's people in the door, it's bar revenue. Yeah. He does have a jug at the end. All right. right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that could be a varying amount, but he would be getting money from the venue. Right. Same, like, same with, um, you know, he'd be making something from the venue at, in European Beer Cafe right. as well. Like his Thursday and Saturday gigs for sure. Oh, so European Beer Cafe is also free? No, it's paid. But oh, he'd right. be getting money from both sources. Both sources, Because yeah. he's, go- he's pulling in big names. Yeah, right. It's guaranteed people through the door. They're going to spend money. It's a Thursday and a Saturday night, right? Thursday's the new Friday in the city now. Yeah, yeah. Because of remote work. Oh, right. Yeah. So huh. Fridays in the city are, are dead now. Because everyone that has the ability to work remotely, like myself included, don't go in on a Friday because they slack off on Friday afternoon. What's the point? So Friday is the preferred day off for people who have a day they can work at home. Yeah. Because you've got a, basically a soft, long weekend. Three-day three weekend. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you still got to do some work on Friday, but you don't have to go Yeah, you just move the mouse a couple of times. <laughs> make sure you're online. Two or three, a few keystrokes. Yeah, yeah. Just a couple of taps. <laughs> move on to the next thing. I'm, I've done it. Um... Everyone does it. Everyone does it. But in the end of the day, as long as you're getting your job done. Yeah. 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 I'm in sales, right? Nobody, as long as I'm hitting my number, nobody gives a shit what I do. I reckon as long as people are doing their job, if it takes you less time and you want to do it in your own time, then go for it. Yeah. You know, I'm not a boss, but I reckon that sounds the best. And if your employees are happy, they're going to stick around and do a better job. Yeah. You know, there's CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella said something that obviously resonates with everyone in remote work is... Work is what you do, not where you go, right? Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe someone like yourself in a kitchen, you have to go there because that's yeah. where the people are. That's right. But, you know, I'm in sales. You know, I communicate with people. I see, I go out and see them. I see them over, you know, 
video chat, call them, mobile, it doesn't matter where I am. Yeah, with technology, it's not where you are physically isn't important as long as you're connecting and seeing and talking with each other. Yeah, 100%. And particularly now that everyone lives in their fucking phones and through their screens and devices. Mm. Um, yeah, that's definitely the way that the world's going. And that's why I invest into digital comedy. You need to, right? Nothing beats the life experience. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Right? Again, you're not going to feel that energy and that connection and the live experience. Mm. Right? It's sort of like, it's like listening to an album versus going to a show. Yeah. The album's going to give you something. Yeah. But when you're heaving in, in the mosh pit with 40,000 yeah. other people, yeah. right? That's a different experience. It is. But right? you're still going to be really ha- glad you got the album because you can play it at home all the time. Yeah, but comedy doesn't work that way. You know, only really true. good jokes can you listen to and come back to. And it's not necessarily the joke. It's the truth behind it. Yeah. Well, I did used to listen to Bill Hicks over and over again. And then I finally got to the point that I couldn't yeah. hear it anymore. Yeah. But it took a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. There are some albums, like there are comedy albums that I listen to, you know, and don't, I don't get sick of. Mm. Um, a lot of Patrice O'Neill. Um, I've got to get into Patrice O'Neill because I've heard you talk about him and I've heard Joe talk about him a lot. Yeah. And I haven't actually seen anything because he's not live anymore, correct? No, he died in 2007, 2008. I can't remember. Around Cause, there. Because people keep saying, oh, if only Patrice O'Neill was alive and he had a podcast, what he'd be saying about what's going on yeah. now. And... Yeah, absolutely. Like, he was he was a comedian's comedian. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it was truth at all costs and he's had <sighs> some very divisive and... You know, not controversial. I mean, controversial now, just ideas about women in the world and how they work and relationships and things like that. But it hits you right in the gut, right? He it, he hits you different. I love that stuff. I'm going to definitely have to check him out. Yeah. So just look up any Patrice's stuff. Um, he's got this great... He had this great talk show. We want to talk about relationships for a bit. The sort of... Um, it's called The Black Phillip Show. And that was a radio show that he did with another comedian called Dante Nero. Okay. And he basically, it's just, it's like, it's, it's, um, relationship advice, um, just in general, but it's like, you know, the harsh truth of relationships and things like that. Did they make it comedic as well? Yeah, it was funny. Yeah. It was definitely funny. It was like, it was basically a podcast, really. You know, okay. It was a podcast, which is a radio show they used to do in like Friday or Saturday nights in dead air time. Uh, okay. And they'd get people writing in with their relationship problems? Yeah, they would call, dial in and they would talk about their relationship problems and because... So, you know, Patrice is, you know, they wouldn't say like a pickup artist, but definitely knew how to attract women. And okay. Dante, who was, um, he was a stripper, a very well-known stripper back in the day, a, a pimp, a literal pimp. Wow. Yeah. Just had a, had a sexual mastery, right? Wow, sexual okay. relationship mastery and things like that. Um, so, yeah, they just talked, they sort of like powwowed on their stuff and, you yeah, know, made this show. Was Dante also a comedian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he'd come from that background of uh, sex work, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he talked about that in his comedy? Or... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow, that'd be fascinating. Yeah. And the two of them had a radio show. Yeah. And they, yeah, and they, <laughs> people recorded it because it, it's, a, it's a cult. It's definitely a cult classic. But there are things in there that sometimes are unpleasant truths in both sides of the fence in relationships. And you can just go, yeah, he's not wrong. They're not wrong. Right. If you want to continue to have a relationship ongoingly, you have to face those harsh truths. Oh, yeah, you have to. You can't avoid keep avoiding them. And in my experience, because I'm in my 50s, mm. and especially as a middle-aged adult, I've really noticed how so many people don't want to face the truth. Yeah. And so many people just want to... Um, 
that's what the whole th- ghosting, like when ghosting became a thing, like, okay, in the past, before you had all this digital stuff, you might not return a call or something like that. Yeah. But generally speaking, unless it was just me, mm. if you were going to break up with a partner or boyfriend or girlfriend or you, something was wrong between you and your friend or something. Yeah. You had a talk. Yeah. You talked it out. Mm. And then with technology and with people hiding, well, not hiding, but using texts and messages and stuff like that, it was very easy to avoid confrontation. Yeah. And then this ghosting thing started to, in my mind, from what I could tell, became a technique of showing someone that you weren't interested anymore. Mm. But it was like, no, that's not a, you're just, you're just dipping out. You're yeah. just, you're just being a coward. Yeah. It's cowardice. It's digital cowardice. I mean, it's happened to me a few times. It's not, I mean, ghosting really only occurs early in engagements in relationships, not in committed relationships or anything like that. It's like when you're dating someone, a couple of dates here and there, it's early on. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you're ghosting someone six months into dating them, that's a fucking problem. That's a real piece of shit move. But really the ghosting part is when you're in that nondescript sort of unestablished part of the relationship. Well, I also found, okay, let's put it this way. It might not be ghosting as such, but I, I, <clears throat> I don't have communication with my brothers anymore mm-hmm. because there was a big dispute, a big thing that happened in 2018. It was massive. Yeah. And as... Emails went back and forth about this. What became clear was they were not interested in addressing the issues Mm -hmm. that I would put out in the email. Yeah. Completely not address them. Yeah. And come back with a whole bunch of other shit, Mm -hmm. right? And it's like, well, I'm not going to talk about this with you until you're willing to address the issues that I have outlined in the email. Yeah. So that was their way of just trying to step over it altogether. Mm. And, of course, the relationship is null and void now. Yeah. Because you cannot continue with a relationship by continuing to step over things that are important to the other person. Oh, yeah. So you, you can't, you have to face everything. You can't step out and around these situations. They just build up. It just creates tension. And that tension just undermines and underlies the dynamic. It completely and, poisons everything. Yeah, it absolutely does. And um, then all the resentment starts or continues, gets deeper. Yeah, because, again, it's just that itch that's not being scratched and not being addressed. It just builds and builds and builds. I mean, yeah, absolutely. There is a problem. People don't know how to confront. They don't know how to communicate. They haven't really been taught emotional intelligence. And I'm, look, I'm in, this, I'm in a similar boat. You know, I've really had to cultivate a significant amount more um, EQ. I've always had a degree of EQ. Emotional. Intelligence and mm-hmm. things like that. So I've, I've had to because I've been an account manager my entire life. I've been in, I've been in people. I'm a people person. Yeah, well, when you're in a managerial role, that's what you need to do. You need to manage the people. Yeah. So I've been in leadership positions of varying degrees my basically my entire life. Um, and then also... You know, I've come to realize that I'm a very good peacemaker because I was an only child until I was 12 and my mm-hmm. parents were very conflicted. They're basically there because of me. Right. So I was playing right. peacemaker and I was the only emotional ally they had on both sides of the fence for a lot of this stuff. Got it. So I've, you know, I've found my anxious tendency and my peacemaking ability and my personal skills to have come from trying to keep happy families happy. Right? Yeah, right. But that doesn't mean that I haven't been good at facing my own truths. And that was probably part of the reason why my relationship broke down before I went on my transformation a couple of years ago. Is that I wasn't willing to face myself. Right. Face my own truths and my own bullshit and just project that I'm others and things like that. But you can't lead people to that. 
they have to figure that out themselves. Oh, yeah, because I find that if you try to uh, make people confront their own truths, as I perceive it, yeah. they just get defensive. Yeah, 100%. And end up trying to tell me that I'm doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, well, this is going nowhere. Yeah, yeah. And I've made that mistake plenty of times until recently. Um, you know, I've always been a serial fixer for pe- for myself and for others. Right. And people aren't often prepared to, you know, it's, much to, it's my fault, really, for trying to, you know, make people see the way. I just get frustrated when I see people making the same dumb mistakes in their lives and they can't see the forest and the trees for themselves. It's very frustrating. It is. It is. Especially when you can see how things would be so much better if they just tweaked a few things and yeah. faced a few things about what they do. And it's, it's interesting because, um, yeah, one of my brothers cannot, well, both of them, but one of them has lived with us, lived with us for a little while during the pandemic and stuff yeah. like that. And it was really, got really hard because... When people don't feel secure in themselves, mm. as soon as you bring up one thing about them that you don't like or you need them, want them to change, mm. they get really defensive about it or close off yeah. or will not return the text, will not read the email because it appears to me that as soon as you point one thing out, they seem to, they, they just seem to hurt so much or something gets triggered off inside yeah, them. It's, it's trauma and it's ruining. All right, it's a lot of trauma and wounding. That's something that I've learned a lot about over the last three years through my own inner workings and my own inner physical transformation. It's been less about the physical and more about the mental and about the knowledge of self. Right, because you've gone through a, an emotional, mental, and physical. You've gone through I've all gone through of the. It all. You've yes. transformed it all. Physically, mentally, spiritually, all of it. It's been a real, you know, complete transformation would you be willing to take us maybe in a, a, a um in a succinct manner through the steps of what occurred yeah yeah it's fucking, and it's, what's yeah it's a lot the to, journey yeah the that journey. you've been on yeah so pretty much it pretty much started like so you know to really condense it down um you know wasn't a very unhappy child bullied a lot was a bully as well um bit of a loser grown up to school you know a bit of an outsider whatever, 18, clinically depressed, bombed out of VCE, even though I was a very gifted child. Right. So, you know, when I was in prep, I was reading with grade twos and grade threes. I right. was always the top of the academic pool. I was considered for scholarships, things like that. Wow. So I had a lack of purpose, you know, as a lot of people do and a lack of direction in that point in my life. I started to work on myself, started going to the gym. At that point, I was like, you know, almost 100 kilos, very weak. I was a very inactive child. Right, so this is in VCE? Yes, yeah, so this is like 18. So, right, so you're about 100 kilos, so you're quite overweight. Yeah, borderline obese, on antidepressants, shit like Right, you're not doing any exercise. No, I was a very inactive child. Right, so, got um, it. Oh, so you went down a hole. Oh, yeah, I was, you know, I was very, I was, <laughs> I was not raised well, uh, emotionally and physically. Right, got um, it. And unfortunately, that occurred in your year 12? Well, I just sort of came to my head when I went to year 12. I didn't know what I wanted to do next because of this pressure of what, who you are and what you want to do. Oh, man, year 12, year 11 and 12, they're high-pressure years. Yeah, yeah. Um, my brother is 20, so I, I, he went through the same thing. And I sort of helped him through it as well in through a single situation. Right. But, so I started working on myself back then. Um, so, and, but again, that, I started to lose a bit of weight. So I actually, you know, got, I actually got fairly skinny, which was good. Okay. But, I, you know, it was never, it's never about the physical it's actually way more about the mental. 
Right. So I still had crippling a lot of self-esteem, um, you know, a lot of negative self-image, a lot of trauma that I had no idea that I had, right? You're, right. Just, you're just this egoic individual that's stuck in your pain and everything's out to get you and that sort of stuff. And a lot right? of negative self-talk. Oh, yeah, heaps, heaps, heaps. Yeah, right. Got my first partner, um, my first girlfriend when I was like 19. Oh, we started dating around 20. Okay. But we weren't in a committed relationship until I was turned 21. And that sort of really fraught with me because I had this terrible anxious attachment style, um, you know. Oh, because you were both dating other people or she was she dating was, other people? Yeah, she didn't want to commit to me and she was my first girlfriend. And, you know, there's a lot of firsts with her. Like, you know, I was a virgin until I was, you know, until I dated, started dating her. Yeah, right. And so, and so, you know, that didn't really work out well. So, you know, there's a lot of codependency, a lot of an anxious attachment. We were together. Sure. And, we, you know, we were together for about... Um, Almost 10 years. Oh, wow. So basically my entire 20s was with her. Well, and did, did you work, start to work through these issues of feeling insecure and dependent? Because feeling insecure within a relationship, unless that starts to get resolved, really yeah. eats away. Yeah, no, it got better over time. Right. But it wasn't necessary. But we were in the same boat. Like, we weren't taught about emotional self-regulation or understand ourselves. You know, we're just stuck in the pain of who we are as individuals. You know, not taught to be mindful, not to not don't know how to process our emotions, that sort of thing. Yeah, right. Right. There's a lot Got of it. emotional immaturity. She was more mature than me. I was definitely emotionally immature. So I. But you were in your twenties. Yeah. Goodness sake. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. In some ways, I was an old soul. In some ways, I was still very much a hurt child. Sure. Right. So yeah. the, the a lot of my recovery process now has been about nurturing and recovering the hurt child. Yeah, and sure. And, you know, becoming more of a man mm. in various aspects of my life and ownership of what I want in life. Mm. So, yeah, we were supposed to go over, so, you know, the relationship was, you know, troubled constantly, but we were committed. But I was starting to really feel this gut sensation about, you know, the inadequacies of my life and where I was going. Right. And, you know, being committed to her would have not help the situation because I wasn't actually happy in the relationship. I just had really low self-esteem. I didn't think I could get anyone else and that sort of thing. Oh, wow. Some living living self-belief. But it got to a point where I was so uncomfortable and unhappy with myself and where I was in the relationship. Not to do anything with her. It was just about me and how I sort of pushed that out. That we were supposed to go overseas um, and go backpacking for a year um, at the February 2020. So we were planning okay. this. Oh, my the, God. Yeah. So we, were, we were planning. In retrospect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were, planning, we were planning this all through 2019. I had, th- I had personal problems with my dad, personal problems at work. Was really feeling anxious about this trip because last time we went on a holiday together was really bad. And we, went, we figured out we weren't really compatible. And we were sort of like keeping a shitty situation together because oh. we were too attached. I started getting, to, I was really into comedy at that time. And I felt she, like she was holding me back from pursuing my comedy career or my creative pursuits just because she wanted to spend more time just cuddled up and watching TV and that sort of stuff. Sure. So I was really feeling a lot of insecurity at the time and, like, you know, I wasn't happy in that relationship for a while and it got to the point where I was like, you know what, the pain of being... The pain of the trajectory I'm on mm. is feels way worse than the insecurity of what I could be doing on my own. Yeah, right. So I had to... So I took the leap and I broke it off with her yeah. in November 2019. And right. A, yeah. So and had, you didn't go on your trip together, no, obviously. No. And then I had like, so I had this feeling that I need to chase something that's in my gut mm-hmm. about what I could be a better sense of self. Because again, I was, you know, fairly still, you know, physically, mentally unhealthy. I had, a, you know, 
a bit of an addiction to weed at the time, mm-hmm. numbing myself a lot, mm-hmm. didn't address any bullshit that I had in my life. You know, avoiding my parents, avoiding just all my problems in life. Avoiding your problems. Yeah. 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 And nothing yeah. that bullshit. Um, and then I had an epiphany, you know, the next month I went to, funnily enough, I was doing a gig at Strawberry Fields with Sam and a few other people. Did acid, you know, I'm one of those fucking weirdos said, you know, acid changed my life. It kind of did because psychedelics started to really wake me up to the bullshit. Oh, man, the psychedelics will wake you up yeah, to the bullshit. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'm, <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to go through some really bad trips. Yeah, so I had, I had one or two bad trips before that point, and that was really the catalyst for going, okay, there's some deeper shit here. Mm. Um, and yeah, now, there's nothing like psychedelics to shove your own bullshit in your yeah, face. Yeah, it, it, it was an ego death, for sure, right? <laughs> So there was, so yeah, um, you know, this epiphany, like I'd been using her as an excuse my entire mm. life to that point saying, okay, but so now she's not there. So it's entirely up to me to get things done in my life. Yeah. Because you could no longer say she's holding me back. Correct. Yeah. So when the accountability was forced upon me, even though it always was, but when I felt that it was, mm. I started to take some drastic steps to actually going after the things I want. Which is, you know, having a fit body and feeling comfortable in my own skin and figuring out all my mental bullshit. So, you know, in, in the months after that, I started going to therapy, like intensely every two weeks. I, I paid for a diet coach, which helped for that transformation. Yeah. And, and this was all starting to come together literally around Feb 2020. Wow. Right. And so, you know, come March, when this world's starting to collapse in itself and I see what could have happened, I went, fuck, I dodged a bullet here. Yeah. I dodged a real fucking bullet because if we had stayed together, we would have been stuck in India. Wow. You know, and we would have been stuck and in India. You would have been stuck there. You wouldn't have been able to get back for months. Years. Years. Yeah. Oh, Christ. Over a year. Probably two. Yeah, because they weren't letting people back in. Yep. And it depended on where you were coming from. And Yeah, yeah. And then, then the, India had a massive wave of it too. Huge. Yeah. So... Wow, man. Yeah. So, like, during the pandemic, and I said this at the time... You must have been so fucking relieved. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You must have gone, oh, my God. And So, this that's... It it was a a real catalyst for this spiritual journey that I've been on. That something is looking out for me. Yeah, When I focus on myself and looking after myself and looking at what's best for me and sorting my own shit, I I get paid back by the universe in dividends. That's a great lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Because you were... Stepping way outside your comfort zone. Look, your yeah. comfort zone was becoming so uncomfortable yeah. that you had to get out because nothing was comfortable anymore because no. your shit was coming up. Yeah. But you took the step because there are people that go through their whole lives in that shit and get resent, and they're the really picky, resentful, negative yeah. people that you go, what the fuck happened to them? They don't. They and, look miserable. And I've, I've been that person in multiple aspects of my life. I've always been the cynic. Right? I, right, I was a very cynical, negative person in some ways. Very skeptical. Right, but I, I could roll it off with humor, but I yeah, definitely sure. it's I, a coping mecha- mechanism. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I, I've seen that. But I, that's the thing is that you have that higher witness, and then mm. you have the identity of self, which is usually bundled up in that soreness and that pain. Yeah. So I was starting to focus on that meta communicator, that higher sense of self, the silent observer, and the 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 the, the reward from the universe, so to speak is that you have the courage to take those steps to face yourself, to face the part, uncomfortable truths is the name of this podcast, Yeah. to unco- uncover and face the uncomfortable truths about yourself mm. and start to do something about it, which is a big deal. Yeah. It's not that, easy. Yeah, and that's been my entire process since then, is like going, okay, 
I can't get fit on my own. I need help. I can't sort out my mental shit on my own. I need help. Wow. Um, you know, facing into conflicts with my family and the traumas that are around that. And that's still an ongoing process, right? Like right now, I'm getting into some real deep core wounds and working through that at the moment. You know, wounded feminine, um, poor relationship with my, my mother and how that relates to how I connect with people and myself. Yeah, yeah, like I'm, yeah. So again, so I guess to step back, from March to June 2020, I lost 15, 16 kilos. I went from 25% body fat to sub 10%. So I got shredded. Fuck you. Those are in the first few months of the first lockdown. Yeah. So were you able to, you were communicating with your coach via Zoom? Uh, just Messenger. Messenger. Messenger and use a spreadsheet. It's all digital. And so were you doing exercise here at home? You, yeah. You so I, did, some I lived, weights, in, a, I lived in an apartment. So yeah, yeah, I started hustling because the thing, one of the things was the clarity that I had at the time was that lockdown in a in a high pressure situation i'm not one to panic i actually you know what situation in a high pressure situation oh, high pressure yeah right i'm not one to panic i actually i actually focus you in get calm i like a stressful situation got it that's pressure. why you're a good manager yeah and a good salesperson i got like it. i like pressure pressure creates diamonds got i it. like a, i need that yeah, to right. push me forward yeah and i saw i saw lockdown there's an opportunity that you would never get again right yeah the entire world shuts down yeah every idea that you need to believe that something is out there for you to pursue or the the bullshit habits that you're not even aware of that are you know governing your life like getting pissed every weekend and things like that mm. they're gone yeah so that's an opportunity for you to sit down pause reflect see what of part of your life you need to improve yeah so i essentially cocooned in for all of the entire lockdown and i just worked in myself yeah right. right. I worked, you know, working through my traumas and my bullshit self analysis. Talking about psychedelics, I took multi, I did something multi, I do something called the psychedelic check in. Yeah, I've heard you talk about that on your podcast. Do you want to describe that to us? Yeah, it's just self administered psychedelic therapy. Um, essentially, I just I write. I have a journal. I journal every day, um, but I have a deeper journal that I write down some essential questions about life, the big questions about life, my direction, how I feel about myself. Because I find that psychedelics, particularly LSD, not so much psilocybin, um, it, yeah, breaks through my ego. And I really do channel that higher self. And I really do break past my bullshit and can have some honest conversations about where I think I am in, in life. Yeah. And that gives me the guidance about where I need to be refocusing my energies and what I'm doing next and that sort of thing. So I started doing that. Um, yeah. Basic. I think the first one was June 2020. And you take it by yourself? Yep. So, you know, set and, setting, ritual. Yeah. yeah. Here at home? Yep, at home. And you, what kind of dose would you take? Just a standard tab. So a full tab? Yeah, you know, 100, 120 micrograms. And how long? So that, that goes for about, that can go for like 10 hours, can't no, it? No, I never have long trips. No? I usually have no more than four to five hours. on Okay. A, yeah. Right. And that's enough time. You know, I enjoy it for a bit, but then I go, okay, time to... Time to, to look inside and get introspective. So do you do a bit of meditation while you're on it? Or? A little bit. It's just introspection, really. Just, yeah. just sitting with yourself. Yeah, sitting with myself. Seeing what comes up. Yeah, well, and asking the questions of yeah, myself. Yeah, yeah. And then seeing what comes up and then I will speak it out or I'll, I'll definitely journal it journal out. Journal it, yeah, right. And that helps me, you know, sort of process <coughs> where I think I'm at. It's interesting because um, I, I think that's very much what... Well, that's what I like about psychedelics is that it seems like you can tap into your, should we call it intuition? Mm. Uh, tap into your yourself that lies underneath all the conditioning. 
Yeah. So that when you're feeling confused or not sure about something, mm. you seem to have, if you can, you know, if, if you're, if you have set and setting in the intention, mm. you can ask questions of yourself on that level beyond the conditioning of I should do this and they say yeah, I should do this absolutely. and my mum reckoned I should do this and because we're running that condition is running us all the time yeah yeah we are sitting in the back driving and to mm. access that um, intuition underneath can sometimes take a bit to get still to get all that other voices out of your head 100% psychedelics can help a lot with that yeah and that we're seeing that now with maps and different organizations that are sharing the benefits of psychedelic therapy and MDMA assisted therapy right but you know I really like I'm really into the forefront of mind medicine and holistic health and things like that and yeah look you know it's it was a gamble mm -hmm. but I seem to be having my gamble in myself actually being you know um validated by the latest in psychedelic assisted therapies and medicines that are being popularized at the moment so what you're reading definitely matches what you've been experiencing yeah yeah, yeah absolutely that makes have you ever thought to take psychedelics with other people i have i've done it in the past with friends mm -hmm. and i've 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 been you know i like to say a bit of a shan and some of my, some of my friends as well like you know i've I've definitely let a lot of people into smoking weed for the first time. Yeah, I've done that too. Uh, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> I call it breaking them in. Like I've, <laughs> I've broken in probably about two dozen people in my life. Like, oh, congratulations! High five, yeah. dude! I'm yeah. proud of you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm a bit of a, I'm a, I'm a tripper, but um, with psychedelics now, yeah, I've done it with other people for fun, but I respect it too much now to use it recreationally, Got and it. I get too introspective. And I, I just I just go into my own little inner world, which is fine for me. I don't care. But if I'm there to trip with other people or have fun with other people, then I'm just in the corner and I'll just start pontificating about life. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the messenger and the higher self really comes through for me and to the point where I'm like, you know, yeah, I don't even take it recreationally. I take it every six months. Mm -hmm. I do my, do my process and that's it. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to sit other people. You know, help them through that process. Have you ever had anyone come in and sit with you? Yeah, yeah. The dose wasn't strong enough, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, they got, you know, they still got comfortable with the idea of, you know, taking psychedelics because they're all first-timers, right? So, um... So you do it by yourself once a month? Did you Once every six months? Once every six months. I've taken... I took one of my ex-partners through one. All right. So that'll be separate to your once every six months solo? Oh, uh, no. We did one together. Okay. And then the other time, I would, I didn't take them. I let others take them, and I sat them. And I looked oh, after them. so you looked, at, got it. Yeah. So you, you help. I guide help, the trip. Guard them. Yeah. If they needed it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly got right. Got it. Um. So yeah, because I think it is definitely, um, it's the future. Um. It's just that it needs to be done in the right conditions, and I trust myself to look after people. I'm a very service-based individual. I think you know yeah. it's medicine. You know, I'm really keen on going to um, Costa Rica or Peru in the next, you know, whenever I can um, and doing ayahuasca and, you know, mm. doing it legitimately um, through uh, shippers and, you know, the, um, you know, the natives of the land. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm a big believer on it. Um, Would you ever consider doing ayahuasca here in Australia? Uh, if, if it was legitimate, you know. Because um, I've done quite a few ayahuasca circles here in Victoria. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. What, DMT or ayahuasca? Ayahuasca. Huh. But it might be made from this because there's a certain um, type yeah. of Australian 
wattle, uh, wattle gum tree, right? That has a high acacia. It's the acacia tree, right? Um, now I'm not sure whether it's the actual DMT source or whether it's the um, the other one that you mix with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember all the names. Neither do I. Yeah, one contains all the DMT, but you've got the other one that slows down the metabolism because if you only take DMT, then it just gets metabolized yeah, so gets, quickly you can't those, feel it. Yeah, there's blasts. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, there are ones you can uh, get here in Australia mm. and then sometimes the guy that leads them brings stuff over from South America. Okay. And he went to, he's an Australian guy, mm. um, but he he did all his training over in South America with many different shamans and de- um, did the, it's not called deity, it's a it's a D word that they use when they take it for a, a like go right in for about right. two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I'm not too sure what it's called. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, and look, I don't have, the situation where I can go to Peru at this point in time. Mm. So I actually became the cook. Oh, really? Because I cook, right? Yeah. So there's 60 people in a circle, these particular circles, and yeah. and I can't really afford it because it costs a bit yeah. here in Australia because they've got to rent somewhere to get everybody out there and all that. Yeah. Um, so I use my skills from work and 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 cook with a, another two people who are my assistants yeah. for the 60 people for the weekend. Right. And I get to sit with them. Sit in yeah. with them and yeah, it's been uh over the years since since 2015. Yeah, wow. Been doing that and um I haven't done it since lockdown. Yeah. Of course, but yeah, it's an amazing experience and I'd imagine in Peru it would be even more you know. Yeah, yeah, really authentic. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's done by, you know, families, generations of people that have passed down that knowledge. And you're in the country and on the land mm. where it comes from. But I, but I think it's still very beneficial if you find a shaman, a facilitator, a leader who you feel comfortable with mm. and you get good, you want to get someone who is recommended. Yeah, yeah. Right? You can still have amazing experiences and great growth. Yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, no, I'd be open to it for sure. It's just that, you know, there's like places in, like the specialised places now. Yeah. That are, like, they, they have them as like week-long retreats. Yeah. Right, so they do multiple ceremonies and you have time to integrate and, you know, they look after you throughout the entire process and like, oh, that'd be kind of cool as like a first experience because, <sighs> you know, you, you'd be go- I'd be going in pretty deep, you know, like it's the first, it's a, re- it's a real dragon to slay, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I'm sure you'll be fine because you've got the history around psychedelics and you've done meditation and stuff like that. So yeah. you walk in prepared. Yeah. You, well, you do, but you don't, right? Because oh, you never know what's coming. Exactly right. <laughs> you know, I, I think I've got a pretty good hold on the things that the, the limiting beliefs that I've got in my life, you know, from a pretty intense period and constant period of self-reflection. And, you know, I'm always someone that's want to fix things and tinker with things right and I would now the easiest thing to do is just to tinker with myself yeah right and that's what I've been constantly doing is you know I've been, definitely become more a lot more insular as an individual post-pandemic and post-transformation because really the best thing you can do to work on things is really work on yourself because you know your entire reality is governed by the thoughts and beliefs that you have yeah and when you work on yourself whatever let's say, for lack of a better word, improvements that you make or breakthroughs that you have yeah. about letting go of the shit that doesn't serve you and and focusing more on structures in your life and ways of thinking that are going to serve you. Mm. But that automatically 
then serves other people around you. Yeah, absolutely. Just through who you're being. Yeah, and that's the best way to really live your life. And that's what I've come to realize now is, you know, as someone that loves to be a mentor and loves to help people, right? You know, I, I mentor a lot of people and have over my time. Um, the best way to scale that out is to honestly just be an example of it, you know, as and to just be an example that's accessible to them in their lives. Yes. And, you know, and scaling that out where you can, right? Is that, you know, by living a better life, instead of preaching down their throat about how they think should be living their lives, it's much easier to be living a good life by example and then having that sort of just rub off in the way that you carry yourself in the energy you have. And it's also a lot easier in your own life because you're not investing your time into other people who may not necessarily give you that return on investment. Um, yeah. And really, it's not benefiting you aside from being altruistic, which doesn't really exist. Um, and also, like, yeah, you're really just fulfilling an, uh, probably just that habitual need to fix someone as opposed to genuinely caring about who they are, right? And then yeah. again, I've bumped into so many walls with people about how they should be doing things in life that I just got to, I'm just wasting my time and I'm yeah. wasting my energy. Yeah, and they don't, I mean, people aren't ready to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Yeah, they don't. You know, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's. I mean, none of us like being told what to do if we don't particularly agree with that person at the time. No, they need, you need to, <laughs> you need to ask for help most of the time before you're ready to receive it. And uh, some people have to sink pretty low before they're willing to yeah, ask. Yeah, same. It happened and to you, me. And yeah. you kind of have to be willing to let them go. Yeah. Um, as in, you know, and if you want the help, you'll have to come back. Or if you want to be around me, I operate like this. Yeah. And if if you want to hang with me, then this is, you know, you need to have integrity. You need to be honest. Correct. There's Correct. some things I require from the people that are around me. Yeah. And I'm getting better at that. Like I used, to, I've definitely give overreached a lot of times in my life for other people right. and haven't got a lot back in return. Um, so I'm getting much better at just keeping my energy and keeping the circle tight for people that value me and my time and what I can give, because I know that what I've got now is extremely valuable. Right, I've got yeah. clarity of presence of mind that very few people have around me. Yeah. Um, it almost, for lack of a better word, it's almost like pearls before swine. Yeah. If you're offering all this stuff and it's like they don't want it, you know, they might not see it as pearls. They might just see it as you being really dominating. Yeah. Preachy, overbearing. I've been called all of that many times. And that's true as well. You know, it's like yeah. you might have the jewels, but if you trying to push shit on stuff onto people. It doesn't look like jewels anymore. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I sort of sit back and think about how I can help people, you know, cause I still have this insatiable need to help people. And you know, when, when you, I've learned to fill my own cup. Yeah. Right. That's really one of the biggest things, right. Is that I gave so much to other people, didn't understand what I actually valued and what was good for me. Yeah. And when you fill your cup up and when you have those feelings, those nice feelings of fullness, you want to give out to people, right? You, yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's a place that I'm pretty constantly at, which is a great, that's a great value that, in my life. That's a great place to be. And I can see that coming through Jambo. Because mm. you're putting that, how do I say it? You're not telling anyone what to do, but what you're building is great and, yeah. and, and top value like you're yeah you're doing a really great job yeah and through that you're being of service to all of us comedians mm. who are fortunate to, enough to come and play yeah and you're being 
thought you're being of service mm. to all of the patrons yeah. because they're having a great night. Yeah. And you're being of service to the people that run Jambo themselves mm. because you're promoting their restaurant, which oh, is yeah. their all the time so yeah. bring more people to them on a regular basis so you're not telling anyone to do anything but no. through creatively acting on this part of yourself mm. you're being of service to everyone yeah yeah and, that, and that's it right is that you know that's what I, I actually take a lot out of running rooms because i still get the same validation and the same feeling of goodwill from running the show mm. as much as i do actually performing in the show now, there might be more of a peak by when you're killing on stage. Yeah. But I'm still responsible for every person in that room having a good night. Yeah. And they Both have a... the punter and the comedian? Yeah. Yeah? Creating yeah. the environment. Yeah. I facilitate the environment for good things to happen. And, and that's a big thing. Yeah. That makes a big difference. Yeah, it does. And that's something that... That's an, and that's why I say when people... You know, that's why I'm not concerned about when I say, hey, giving away the secrets... Because you're never going to do it the way I'm going to do it. Yeah. And I'm, I know why I'm good at it and why I, why I value what I do and why I'm good at it. Yeah. Others like to figure that out over time. Mm. And it's, it's not going to be for everyone, right? It's not going to be for everyone what this is. No, but some people could take some of it. And yeah. And like take some of the advice and go, that is a great thing they're doing, but not take all of it, for example, maybe. Yeah. Take whatever res resonates, leave whatever doesn't. I'm not mm. here to force that on anyone. Mm. I'm just saying that's when we talk about, you know, when you're talking about, oh, are you not keen to share secrets? I'm keen to share, share the secrets. That's what my podcast is about. Yeah. My podcast is really about sharing all the insights, all of the learnings, all the tools, every, all the knowledge that I share that I've accumulated in my life to date and sharing it with other people in the hopes that they get something useful of it, right? Yeah. Because we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? I don't, I don't pretend to be original in the things that I've learned. They're my own insights from my own perspective, but I'm a person of knowledge. I've got hundreds of books around me. I just love sharing knowledge mm. and I like being of service to other people and helping them in whatever way I can, whether that be creating experience through comedy, whether it be educating them to, you know, to mentor them and give them guidance because I've, again, I've been without for plenty of parts of my life, mm. you know, as someone that was very smart as an individual and very misunderstood as an individual, I understand the value of having someone that's actually understanding you that even just empathizes. And it's such, it's so few and far between in our society. It makes a huge difference to people's mental health. It does. And I've seen that happen time and time again, and I've been rewarded by it in various aspects of my life by doing that stuff. Mm. So that's what the podcast is for me. It's, trying to, it's figuring out how to help people at scale my way. Yeah, got it. I'm still figuring it out, but when it hits, you know, I've gotten enough feedback from people to go, hey, I'm onto something here. Yeah, when you say figuring it out, I think, I think podcasting is just an ongoing process. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's, you, there, put it, I keep going back to Joe Rogan only because he's my template because that was the first one I started listening to. Yeah. Yeah, we're all good. Yeah, I'm just checking the, um, yeah, just, the levels. Yeah, recording and battery time, just all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hang on, we just got to go back a little bit and I have trouble because I am a weed smoker. Right. I... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Hang on, just can we're we backtrack? Talking about Joe and like what podcasting is and the process of it. And how oh yeah, it there are still some of his podcasts I'm not into. Yeah, and what I've learned from his attitude is that it doesn't matter. Let it go. Another one. Yeah. So there's no 
perfecting anything you, you, you of course should find over time what lands more and what lands less and then yeah. perhaps go down the route that lands more but at the end of the day you're expressing yourself and it comes out and it will land with who it lands yeah and and people will like that some people will like that one and some people will like that one and i think that's you're scattering seeds so to speak yeah you are you're planting a lot of seeds you know podcasting media is a scale tool right it's, it's a scaling tool of ideas and premonitions and other things you asked before, you know, maybe it was off off mic, but what do I get out of podcasting? And yeah, it was one show? of the questions I had, yeah. For me, it's the practice of self-expression. Right. And to be quite honest, I haven't been very good at self-expressing myself authentically and uniquely at all. At the start of, when I started the pod, I was scared of, I'm still scared of being truly seen. Right. right for who I am as an individual. I've kept a lot of myself, I have a very big private world. Right. And, you know, I'm only progressing through this journey of letting out my entire self as I discover it as, and also as I feel comfortable expressing it. Sure. Like, you know, when I did my first podcast episode, I was so, I don't even like being in front of the camera. Yeah, right. I don't mind being in front of a stage and being a fucking idiot on stage. Yeah. But there's something about a camera that paralyzes me. Yeah, And right. even, I'm just, even now, six months into it, almost eight months into it, I'm still only getting increasingly more comfortable in front of the camera. Yeah, right. And I'm not my natural self. Yeah. And I don't, there, there are things that I still feel like I can't say for fear of repercussion or judgment. Sure. So, that, sure. so right now, I'm in the early stages of what I'm creating. And for me, as a creative, it is actually just getting comfortable with the art of self-expression. Yeah, interesting. Interesting, because as a listener, yeah, I don't get that at all. I feel like you're accomplished because mm. you're very fluent, yeah, with your articulation. Yeah, you have you you you're very articulate, mm. and the you put quite deep thoughts across. Yeah, but you put them across in a way that we can understand. Yeah, quite easily. Yeah, and that is quite an art form. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my secret strengths. Um, that's why I'm good at my job, and that's why I'm pretty good at comedy when I work on it, is because I can condense big ideas down into simple aspects. I'm very good at aphorisms and examples and, you know, contextualizing things. That's one of my key strengths as a communicator. It's friggin' awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I know that's there, but I guess it is just, just chipping away at really getting the rhythm of that and really honing in on it. You know, that's, that's the, that's the trajectory and the sort of thing I'm working on now. And then now that I don't have ACN, to be honest, I have a lot more creative freedom because I was so business focused on the business side of comedy that right. I forgot about the comedy side of comedy for me. Right. So yeah. I have more space to be creative. Now I'm going to double down on my podcast and increase its production quality and pay for guests to get bigger guests and you yeah, know, right. take bigger swings with my creative platform. Oh, I look forward to that. Yeah. Because I'll be at work listening to your bigger and better podcasts, which I think your podcasts have been great to date, but to expand like that. Yeah. Fuck yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. Why not? Yeah. You know? It's, it's one of the big signs, which is I know that, you know, letting go of the, what ACN is for now has been for me is the excitement that I've got to work on new things instead. Like I've actually have, I thought I would be a lot more upset about letting go of what I've worked on so far. Yeah. Because I've been working 80 hours a week. Yeah. For the last six months as I started the company yeah. running it. Because yeah, I've a lot been, invested in there. Yeah. I've invested a lot of time and energy, money and identity into it. Yeah. Um, and you probably would have heard I talk about the hierarchy of commitment. 
Yes, right? I wrote that down in my book. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, a big mental model to, to govern your life by and to look at people through. Um, do you want to quickly... We have to finish up soon because yeah. I've, uh, I've got to go, but do you want to let people know what those four tiers of commitment yeah, are? Yeah, yeah. This is a great mental model. Um, mental models, let's take a, another step before it. Mental models and modelling things is a great way to simplify life. Yes. Right. I literally got a book the other day. It's like a series. structure you can you can refer to when yeah. you're building your life. Yeah, yeah. Around you can, it, you can, in it, on you it. Know, the, the the easiest one to consider is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. right? Yeah. To visualize and contextualize a broad amount of information into a hierarchy, into a process, and use a logical brain. Yeah. Is very useful to contextualize and condense chunks of information into. Because then you can prioritize. Yeah. And you can figure out where you're going and how you're going to get there. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a range of books at the moment called The Great Mental Models that are coming in. So it's, again, it's just wisdom from other people that have contextualized different parts of the world and different parts of knowledge into simple models that you can... It's like, it's like condensing the encyclopedia into more pictures, right? Yeah. But about the world. So that's, that's how I think about it. But for, so the hierarchy of commitment is something that I learned only last year. Mm-hmm. But again, it's completely transformed the way I think about people. Yeah. So the hierarchy of commitment is there are four tiers. It's time, it's money, time, energy, identity. Right. Money, money is the lowest. Time is second. Energy is third. Fourth is identity. Right. So we work for money. Right. We exchange time for money. Yeah. But in reality, you should be exchanging money for time. Right. You should be giving up money to save more time because time is a finite resource. Mm. Money is not. Okay. Okay. Got it. So that's why things like convenience always exist in the world. You'll pay more because it's right there and you save time. Got it. Yes. Okay. Yes. You will commit money and time to the right energy. It might be a hobby. It might be someone you love. Mm-hmm. It might be something that gives you that good feeling inside. Mm. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Like, you know, you know, comedy when it's going well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then the highest form of commitment is identity. That which you identify with. So, for example, I use comedian as a perfect example, mm-hmm. right? You will commit your time, your money, your energy to the idea of being a comedian over a sustained period of time. Right? Got it, yes. You'll, you'll burn your money on petrol to go do dog shit open mics. Yeah. <laughs> you will stick out the process of comedy for 10 plus years to make sure you get good at it. Mm. You will be a comedian when it fucking sucks and you're bombing and everything stinks and you hate your material, but you will keep committing to those things because of the idea in your head that you are a comedian and that you are on the way to being a comedian. Gotcha. So that is a great way to sense where people's egos are and how they form a sense of identity. Our identity is the most, most important thing to our psyches, right? Because once you lose who you are, you then then what does your mind have to attach to, right? Yeah. How do you find your place in the world? You don't. And then that's how you get lost and that's how people wander around. And that's that. And to me, that lack of structured identity is one of the key, key curses and poisons of the human condition. Because without that identity, then would that be connected to your sense of belonging? Yeah. Well, in a way, but it's the sense of who am I? Right. When I, both of the times in my life where I broke down, Mm. I didn't know who I was and what I was going to be. And I didn't like where I was going in my identity. So who am I? What, like, what is my purpose? Yes. What are my strengths? 
Yeah. What? Because who am I can be a, kind of a very raw question. Yeah. Now I know we we really. I'm, I'm, normally I don't hurry podcasts, but I've got a gig I know, tonight. You got, I know. It's totally so we fun. might have to do a part two the other day because you are an immense fountain mm. uh, of of knowledge and wisdom and stuff that you've read, and yeah, this stuff is really. You know, who am I? It's a big fucking question. Yeah, it's a big question. And I'm constantly finding out and I'm constantly searching for that. And that's the process. That's the podcast. That's everything I do. You know, I don't fit into a box. I consider myself to be a polymath is where I have, um, I'm a multidimensional individual Mm. and I'm searching through that and people need to do that as well. Absolutely. And it's not just who am, am I, who am I creating myself to be? Yes, correct. Because we're not necessarily just born with an identity, we create. There is, and that's another big question, right? That's, you know, that's another spliff. (laughs) Another couple of hours worth of conversation. Do you still smoke any weed? Can I ask you a question? Oh, yeah, I smoked last night. Like, I've been, yeah, yeah, I'm a regular weed smoker. I don't smoke a lot. I only smoke like a quarter J, like, not a lot. I'm actually out and actually run dry, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, yeah, I've been a big, uh, you know, I was using it as a, I know that I use it healthily and unhealthily. But, right. Yeah. Well, I'm, maybe one day when the time's right, if I catch you at the right time, we could have a smoke a J and then continue. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. I'll totally be down. I'm sm- I've done my podcast high. I've got a. I've got an edible in the fridge. Fifty. I've got a fifty and hundred milligram that I want to eat. Probably just the fifty and do a pod and just see what happens. Oh, dude, I'd love to do a podcast with you high sometime. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Because the first time I was a bit nervous because we haven't like hung out a lot before. No. Yeah. Face yeah. to face, like in bodies in the same room you mm. know what I mean yeah but now that we've already gotten to know each other a lot better yeah then I'd feel much more relaxed because I wanted to if I get too high before a podcast yeah I can uh, lose the direction of the conversation oh I do that all the time I mean my podcast without me being high does that all the time I lose tangents everywhere right do you yeah. write down what you're going to say or do you just sometimes I need to get better at it perhaps guide you've got points that yeah you I've got a cover. few points sometimes I just wing it and have a couple of key points but I yeah. want to the thing is, you might think I'm succinct. I don't think I'm succinct enough. Right. So I want to get better at writing out and having a plot line. Gotcha. Like, I know that I'm meant to wander and that's how I talk. Yeah. Um, I can I can talk ad infinitum, right? I can talk to the fucking cows. <laughs> it's just a matter of, is it relevant? Is it useful? For the most part, I've gotten good at making it useful. Mm. But I know that I can be much more pertinent and impactful if I gave things a bit more preparation. Just like comedy. Yeah. 100%. Just like comedy. Dude, this has been amazing. Yeah, no, it's been great. I feel like I'm kind of cutting you off and I'm sorry, but I'm... I've no, really... no, that's fine. Like I said, you would have to... You have to stop me talking. <laughs> you have to stop me talking. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's good. It's great. good, to, good to connect. Great good to, get to, to connect. Good to know each other. Yeah. We're on the uh, footy... Uh, we're here on a um, holiday. Grand final eve, yeah. Public holiday. Yeah. Great way to spend the... Public holiday before the grand final? Yeah, I've got. I'm supposed to get a text message any minute now, hopefully, about my grand final tickets. I'm a Swan supporter. Wow. Yeah. So, well, good luck tomorrow. Yeah, we fucking need it. I reckon we're. I don't know. I don't like our chances personally, but I'll take it if we win. I wish you the best. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Jamil. No worries. See ya. See ya.